0: Two months after the Hamas attack on Israel, the Israeli government announces limited steps to ease the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Meanwhile, Israel's military has posted unverified evidence that Hamas has fired rockets from safe zones where civilians were seeking shelter. Today is Thursday, December 7th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, i Lisa Mullins. Coming up, more than 750 workers at the Washington Post are staging a one-day walkout to pressure the company to resume contract talks with their union. And women have traditionally had a harder time than men raising money to run for political office, and that has had consequences.
1: We haven't had a woman president. We didn't have a lot of women in Congress or serving as governors, and it took women forming their own organizations and donor networks.
0: What the fundraising gap means for women's political viability coming up, along with Wall Street numbers and the
2: forecast, it's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. The U.N. Security Council is to meet tomorrow following an urgent appeal by the secretary general who warns of a potential catastrophe in Gaza. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports that the Palestinians and their Arab supporters want the council to call for a ceasefire.
3: Secretary General Antonio Guterres called for the meeting, warning that the conflict has created, in his words, appalling human suffering. He says civilians in Gaza face grave danger and he wants the Security Council to help avert a catastrophe. Palestinian Ambassador Riyad Mansour wants the Council to pass a resolution calling for a ceasefire. The U.S. and Israel oppose such calls. They don't want to see Hamas left in a position where it could attack Israel again, as it did on October 7th. The U.N. Secretary General has spoken with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, as
2: well as with Arab foreign ministers who are visiting Washington. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. House Republicans are moving ahead with a vote next week to approve an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports some moderates who were hesitant are now backing the action. This
4: fall, then-House Speaker Kevin McCarthy directed three House committees to launch an impeachment probe, but skipped a House vote because of splits inside his party. Now, Speaker Mike Johnson says approving an inquiry is a necessary step. Nebraska Republican Don Bacon, a moderate who had reservations before, says he will back the resolution next week.
5: When the president refuses to provide documents like he did last week and said because you don't have a formal inquiry, that forces our hand. I think it's just that simple. And I, I can defend an inquiry. I can't defend an impeachment right now.
4: Bacon says he thinks impeachment should be rare and there has to be a very clear high crime or misdemeanor. Democrats say Republicans have no evidence of wrongdoing and are just doing this to provide cover to former President Trump. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The
2: Capital. Investors are watching for key signals about the job market this week. NPR's Scott Horsley reports unemployment has inched up in recent months but remains low by historical standards.
6: The Labor Department is set to report tomorrow on November's job gains amid signs the U.S. job market has cooled a little bit. Earlier this week, the department said job openings were down at the end of October, but layoffs are still rare. New claims for unemployment benefits showed little change last week as 220,000 people applied for aid. Stock in Google's parent company got a lift today after the company launched its most advanced artificial intelligence offering yet. The AI model is called Project Gemini. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
2: At the close at last check, the Dow up 62 points, the S&P also up about 36 points, and the Nasdaq up 193. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is
0: 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Attorney General's office has filed a civil rights complaint against the group NSC-131. The state alleges the group disrupted and intended to shut down LGBTQ events. The group is also accused of trespassing outside emergency shelters that are housing newly arrived immigrants. The complaint calls the actions violent, threatening, and intimidating. The Southern Poverty Law Center classifies NSC-131 as a Massachusetts-based neo-Nazi group. Governor moore says housing that is close to transportation is a key piece of her economic vision for the state. And she says compliance with a law that requires more multifamily homes be built near T-stations is mandatory. WBR's Rob Lane has more.
7: Some municipalities are resisting the state mandate to change zoning to allow for more apartments, condos, and multifamilies near public transit stops. Cities and towns say they're concerned about the additional demand on their infrastructure. On WBUR's Radio Boston, Governor Healy issued a warning for not complying with the MBTA Communities Act.
8: If you don't comply with the act, um, then you're going to see us withholding as a state money for any number of of programs that that you're used to receiving money for and that includes you know for schools it includes for for roads and bridges.
7: Uli says boosting the housing supply is a critical piece of retaining young workers and making Massachusetts more affordable. For 90.9 WBUR I'm Rob Lane.
0: An autopsy will be performed on a dead man who died in police custody. Police were trying to question Samuel Patillo about a double stabbing yesterday when they say he became combative. Police say that they used pepper spray and a taser to subdue him, and then he went into physical distress. He later died at a hospital. Investigators say Patillo's two female relatives who were stabbed are both recovering. 31 degrees in the Boston area. It's going to be cold again tonight. About 24 degrees should be sunny, up around 40. And then Saturday, sunshine and clouds both rising to about 50. Sunday should be gray but warm, up around the low 60s. This is WBUR 31 now at 406. WBUR supporters include
8: Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss.
3: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Elon Musk is the richest person in the world. His business empire encompasses social media, space exploration, electric vehicles, and satellite communications. And those businesses are part of what's pulling him more deeply into disputes over matters of politics, war and peace, and global security. On the social media platform X, he has upset advertisers. Earlier today, he called for Disney CEO Bob Iger to be fired. NPR tech correspondent Bobby Allen and national security correspondent Greg Myrie are here to discuss Musk's entanglements. Hey guys. Hey Ari. Hey. Bobby, to start with you, the federal government has really come to rely on businesses that Elon Musk runs. How deep are his connections to the US government?
10: You know, Ari, really quite deep in a number of key areas. Where both the federal government and the rest of the private sector have underinvested. Elon Musk has stepped in and really dominated. I mean, uh, for instance, You know, 60 percent of the country's electric vehicle chargers are controlled by Tesla. So the Biden administration really has no other choice but to work with Musk in developing green energy policies. Another Musk company, SpaceX, operates the only U.S.-made rockets that can send astronauts to the International Space Station. So through Tesla and SpaceX, SpaceX, Musk's companies have been awarded, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in federal contracts. Um, With the work Musk is doing, sometimes there's no other alternative, so the federal government just can't disentangle itself from the Musk empire.
9: And with X, formerly known as Twitter, Musk also runs what, at least until recently, had been one of the Internet's main town squares. How is that company doing, given all the debate around
10: it? not well when it comes to electric vehicle innovation and reusable spaceships musk is indeed something of a business genius right but a social media company is just a different beast and musk has as we know completely upended x with policies aimed at making it more of a so-called free speech platform but he hasn't been able to make the company less reliant on advertising. About 90 percent of the company's revenue comes from advertising. That's how they keep the lights on, which is a big problem now, Ari, because major corporations are fleeing in droves in response to a number of controversies. In particular, his endorsement of an anti-Semitic post. And recently, he cursed out advertisers who have left with the F word. We don't know exactly how much pain X is in right now, but many big advertisers have left. Apple, Coca-Cola, Disney, Walmart, the list goes on. So they're in trouble right now.
9: Greg, how did Musk go from being a business titan
11: to being so prominent in international politics? We, we really saw this take off when Russia invaded Ukraine last year. Ukraine faced a real challenge with uh, frontline battlefield communication, so it publicly asked Musk on Twitter, ironically, if he could help. Musk jumped in immediately and provided Starlink. This is a satellite internet system, uh, and he gave it to Ukraine's military for free. And it was a real lifesaver for, for the military. It allowed them to communicate among themselves, gather intelligence on the Russians, and do all this in in frontline areas where otherwise they would have pretty much been blind. Now I spoke about this with Dmitry Alperovitch, head of the think tank Silverado Policy Accelerator, and he follows the war very closely.
12: I think Starlink has been absolutely existential. I cannot imagine how the Ukrainians would continue this fight without being able to use Starlink. It is absolutely critical for their success.
9: Um, It seems like this would make Musk a hero in Ukraine, right?
11: Well, initially, until about a year ago when he changed his tune and and started making very favorable noises about uh, Russia and its leader, Vladimir Putin. Musk called for peace negotiations. He tweeted his own peace proposal, which called for giving away Ukrainian territory like Crimea. So this outraged Ukrainians. And Musk also threatened to cut off Starlink, which he said was costing him several hundred million dollars a a year. So this led the Pentagon to jump in and work out a deal announced this summer where it now pays for Starlink. So this has been resolved, but the Pentagon deal again reflects Musk's growing ties with the U.S. government. He also made a visit to Israel. What happened there? So after Hamas attacked, Musk uh, back in October, Musk went on X and he reposted a statement by someone else that said, quote, Jewish communities push hatred against whites. And so this ignited a firestorm and it, it came amid growing criticism that anti-Semitic comments were being widely spread on X. So Musk went to Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu showed him around uh, southern Israel, communities ravaged by Hamas attacks. And this brings us to this recent interview at an event hosted by the New York Times. Yeah, yeah, and remind us what he said there. Well, he apologized for his uh, anti-Semitic post, and he said that might literally be the worst and dumbest post I've ever done. Here's a bit more of what he said. The
13: Jewish people have been persecuted for thousands of years. Everyone here has seen the... the the massive demonstrations Mm -hmm. for Hamas in every major city in the West. That should be jarring.
11: So we should note that that many people at these rallies said they were there to support Palestinians, not Hamas. Point is, Musk was trying to mend fences with the Jewish communities, yet at this very same event, he went off the rails and made incendiary comments at at advertisers who've uh, stopped doing business with X.
9: As we mentioned saying today that Bob Iger should be fired as CEO of Disney. Uh, Bobby, Musk said recently that the advertiser exodus could make
10: X fail. Is that true? In short, we we just don't know. Musk taking the company private last year meant its financials are no longer publicly available. But, you know, Ari, for months now, Musk has floated this idea of filing for bankruptcy, which could help him uh, reorganize the company's debt and maybe renegotiate the terms of the billions of dollars of debt he he took out to buy Twitter but uh you know some have speculated that perhaps Musk is deliberately trying to kill the company we don't have any proof of that but uh you know and in intentionally devaluing an asset could get him into some trouble well, legally it's within the realm of possibility that X could go bankrupt um the, that Musk, uh, you know, just cuts his losses and moves on, maybe that will happen. But if we know one thing about Elon Musk, it's that he's not always so quick to give up. So X's future is just really up in the air right now.
9: NPR's Bobby Allen and Greg Myrie. Thank you. Sure Thanks thing, Ari. Ari.
3: Okay, Republicans debated for a fourth time last night in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And for a fourth time, they did so without the frontrunner in the race, Donald Trump. So, did anyone stand out with just over a month to go before voting begins in this Republican primary? Well, to help us answer that, let's bring in NPR senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro, who watched the News Nation debate and has some thoughts. Hey, Domenico. Hey, good to be with you, Elsa. Good to be with you. Okay, so what was your biggest takeaway from what you saw last night? I mean,
14: I think it's become pretty clear that Nikki Haley emerged as the frontrunner of the candidates running who aren't named Trump. You know, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy went after her repeatedly, sometimes particularly from Ramaswamy, with some pretty mean-spirited attacks. At Mm -hmm. one point, after criticizing her for how she's made and raised money, Ramaswamy held up a notepad that said Nikki equals corrupt, scribbled on it. Let's listen to how Haley dealt with this Ramaswamy attack. Having two X chromosomes does not immunize you from criticism. Ah. Thank
15: you, sir. Thank you. Governor Haley, would you like to respond?
1: (laughs) No. It's not worth my time to respond to him.
14: You know, and that sort of tells you everything about her place in the race as compared to some of these others.
1: Well, I mean, maybe Haley
3: did establish herself, but she still has Trump to contend with and... I mean, she's still pretty far behind him, right? (laughs)
14: Yeah, they all are. I mean, there's just 39 days to go until the Iowa caucuses, and they're, you know, 30 points or more behind him in the polls. And it's not just Trump that Haley has to contend with. First, she has to get past DeSantis, who staked his candidacy on Iowa. Haley's doing better in New Hampshire. But for either of them to be able to go head-to-head with Trump, one of them has to leapfrog the other. Um, their campaigns and super PAC supporting them know this, and that's why they're targeting each other on stage and in ads. Desantis's team feels like he had a strong debate. He was certainly aggressive. But the question is, was that coming from a place of strength or weakness? And can either he or Haley um, close the gap with Trump without –
3: Much time remaining. Yeah. I mean, speaking of Trump, he was a no-show again. Why does he keep insisting on skipping these debates? And how much does he figure or did he figure into this particular debate?
14: Yeah, I mean, his team just doesn't see any advantage in debating these candidates with a lead like he has. They want to create an air of inevitability around him. And you could tell, at least for former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, that there was a sense of urgency about this. He really pressed DeSantis, for example, to answer whether Trump should be president again, not not just that he's too old. Is he you is No,
12: I don't have my thing. We don't, He's the thing.
16: Is we he do fit not or want Isn't do to do. Someone You're talking
14: that's about him being 80, 80 years doesn't old.
16: Does it mean Ron? that somebody
14: could elected? Well, no, a lot of crosstalk there, but yeah, Desantis uh, at the end of the day didn't answer that question, and it's really emblematic of how lightly these candidates, other than Christie, have really treaded when it comes to Trump. You know, Haley was critical of Trump on the debt and China, Desantis on not on Trump not finishing the wall and making Mexico pay for it, but those are pretty tame relative relatively speaking, and DeSantis and Ramaswamy defended Trump when it came to those 91 counts of charges against him. You know, Christie accused them all of treating Trump like Voldemort, the villain in Harry Potter who's talked about as he who shall not be named. (laughs) Right. So anything else
3: you were surprised by or that struck you? Yeah, I mean, I was
14: surprised that they didn't talk about or mention abortion at all. And this was a panel of moderators made up of all women. This has been the issue that has really hamstrung Republicans in the last several elections. They spent some time on this in previous debates, but we heard a lot of rehash on a lot of different topics. And it's surprising considering that they haven't been able to appeal to the middle on this. And really, this becomes the issue, it seems. That's the Voldemort for Republican leaders.
3: That is MPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you, Domenico.
14: You're welcome. Loosen up,
17: everybody. It's a Hanukkah party. We are the Levies.
9: Hanukkah starts tonight, so this year the folks at NPR Music invited the Levies to the Tiny Desk to perform some of their album, Hanukkah Rocks. Tiny Desk creator Bob Boylan even came out of retirement and brought snacks. (laughs) I've been listening to this record with
13: my son for like 18 years or something. Every year at Hanukkah, these songs are so much fun. Thank you. I made you some bagels. I Amazing. know. That, that's crazy. The album was a
9: collaboration between a few touring musicians, including Adam Gardner of Guster and Dave Schneider of the Zambonis.
18: how do you spell Hanukkah?
13: And we discovered we were both Jewish, and we were talking about how, as kids, around the Christmas holiday, it's tough to be a Jewish kid because the music's not really there. Applesauce. We made this record. We wrote it in a week, and we recorded it. It was week. a Hanukkah miracle, eight days.
8: Yeah.
9: You can find the full Hanukkah concert at npr.org slash music.
3: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR, an upward swing on Wall Street today. The Dow rose nearly two-tenths of a percent. S&P climbed eight-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq gained one-four-tenths and of a percent. It's now 418.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and in technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met
0: startups in greater boston continue to attract venture capitalists a survey published by the think tank heartland forward looked at venture capital funding between 2019 and 2021 researcher richard florida says the findings buck assumptions that the pandemic housing costs and other issues would disperse more money to other parts of the country
6: so i think no
9: matter what we've heard in the press and the media about you know things spreading out the preponderance of venture capitalists and the preponderance of serial entrepreneurial talent that is needed to grow
17: and scale these businesses, it's still in two or three places.
0: And they include Boston, also San Francisco, and New York. 31 degrees, the forecast is coming up.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CitySide Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now.
0: Should have another cold night tonight, down around 24 degrees. And for tomorrow, could warm up as far as 40 degrees, some sunshine tomorrow. And then for Saturday, sun and clouds both rising to about 50. Could have a cloudy day on Sunday, but up around 61 degrees. Rain and high winds late in the day on Sunday. 31 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. At UMA.com/NPR, and from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world. Where innovation meets the law, this is NPR.
3: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Journalists at The Washington Post are making some news of their own today. About 750 staffers are on a 24-hour strike, and they're asking readers not to look at the post's site or pick up a newspaper. NPR Media Correspondent David flick is covering the story. David, tell us what you're seeing as the strike plays
20: out. Well, just as we heard there, uh, you know, people from newsrooms engaged in union activity, uh, you'd be seeing a one-day strike. Uh, And that means that, yes, there are these protest lines, but many stories on The Washington Post websites have datelines that that yesterday, some of them, in fact, just minutes before midnight uh, tonight, or simply bylined Washington Post staff. That is, people pulled back their bylines where they're Uh, willing to do. And there was really anxiety within the Washington Post about being able to uh, stockpile enough content to be able to put out there, both in print and uh, on the website today. A Washington Post section editor's memo to colleagues uh, asked them to file stories on, quote, anything that even whiffs of news, unquote. And they cited a need to hoard copy. Here was a direct quote from this editor. He said, or he or she said, this is the first time I've typed those these words in my life. The bar is low the editor wrote. And that memo first reported by Washingtonian magazine.
9: Tell us what's led these hundreds of Post employees to walk out. Well,
20: there are two things going on. Uh, they argue that the Washington Post company is not only taking a hard line in negotiations, but seeking to cut back the staff Uh, significantly. There's going to be a staff reduction of 10%. Uh, The Washington Post company has set a deadline for next week for voluntary buyouts of 240 people. The acting CEO, uh, Patty Stonecipher, says that if not, there aren't enough takers, the company will lay people off with severance packages that aren't so good. And people inside uh, the newsroom tell me that uh, they're really kind of feeling as though things are being targeted that may not be the highest yield of immediate clicks. So something like local news, you know, already something under fire in so many newsrooms around the country, looks likely to take a, one of the biggest cuts. Here's a quote from Katie Mettler. She's a criminal justice reporter on the Post metro desk.
21: I chose to be a reporter on the local desk uh, because I wanted to write about the people I live beside. Um, I think that uh, there is no kind of journalism more critical to the Washington Post's mission.
20: And I want to thank uh, Kayla Hewitt, our colleague from WAMU, for for interviewing uh, Metler and others today. You know, there's a real sense that there's something on the line. David, what should we make of the fact that this storied paper,
9: which is owned by billionaire Jeff Bezos of Amazon, is in such financial trouble?
20: That's right, and and owned privately uh, by Jeff Bezos. I might add, you know, he bought the the paper for two hundred and fifty million dollars, but he's put in a lot of money since and. And is currently although it was in profitable until very recently it's now hit annual losses of a hundred million dollars its chief executive forced out earlier this year you know it- they're saying a guy like Bezos should be able to afford to ride this out and make more investments. What people at the Post say is we have to figure out a way to right-size this. And this is happening against a backdrop of deep cuts throughout the industry. Earlier this week, Spotify, the audio streaming giant, announced a layoffs of 17% of its workforce after previous layoffs earlier this year. And you've seen this happen at the Los Angeles Times, at, at digital upstarts like Vox and Vice and BuzzFeed, at NPR, 10% of our workforce earlier this year. You know, folks are looking up... I-95 from The Washington Post at The New York Times, which seems to have struck gold with its digital paywalls, and they're wondering, what about us?
9: NPR's David Folk thank you. You
3: bet. In Africa, some people who make a living by hunting and foraging have an unusual relationship with a wild bird. This bird is known as the honey guide, and it's called that because it will guide people to trees that have honeycomb hidden inside. NPR's Nell greenfield Voice reports that foragers will call to these birds to invite them to go on a honey mission, and the birds somehow learn to recognize those calls.
22: Scientists have long puzzled over how this wild animal forged a relationship with people, a relationship which may go back many thousands of years. The greater honey guide is not domesticated at all. No one trains these birds, but when a member of the Hadza community in Tanzania goes out walking and makes this special whistle... a small grayish-brown bird will appear and make itself very conspicuous.
13: It'll fly to the Hadza with its uh, chattering sound that lets the honey hunter know that, hey, I'm here and I know where there's some honey, so follow me.
22: That's Brian Wood, an anthropologist at UCLA. He says the bird's game of follow the leader ends when the bird perches on a branch and goes silent.
13: And that's the signal to the Hadza to really start looking for that tree and that opening to the bee nest.
22: Once they find it, they use smoke to subdue the bees and hack open the tree trunk. The bird gets to eat some of the beeswax, which it loves, and the people get the honey more honey than they'd ever be able to find without their bird buddies.
13: This is a really great relationship because honey is hugely important to the diet of Hadza hunter-gatherers, but it's also, it's just a preferred food. It's, honey is great.
22: Who doesn't like honey? Other communities also team up with this bird, like the Yao in Mozambique, but they don't get the bird's attention by whistling.
2: Burr, huh? Burr, huh?
22: Instead, they make this trilling sound followed by a grunt. Wood got to talking about this with another honey guide researcher named Claire Spottiswood. They wondered whether these birds would be more likely to respond to the calls traditionally used in their local area.
13: Or whether all the kinds of calls that all honey hunting communities use would just be innately attractive to honey guides.
22: To find out, they did an experiment. It involved using a speaker to broadcast recordings of each type of call in both locations, Tanzania and Mozambique. The researchers kept track of what was playing when a honey guide appeared.
13: What we found is that in Tanzania, honeyguides appeared 82% of the time that hodza whistles were being played back.
22: But when those birds heard the trilling sound used by people in Mozambique, they only appeared 24% of the time. Meanwhile, the birds in Mozambique had the opposite reaction. They appeared when they heard the trilling sound and were far less likely to show up when they heard the Hadza whistles.
13: We found a very big difference uh, in the sense that each location's honey guides were much more attracted by the sounds of their local honey hunting community.
22: These results appear in the journal Science. They suggest the birds somehow learn to recognize what sounds their human neighbors make when they want to go out looking for honey. But exactly how the birds learn this is a mystery. Steve Nowicki is a bird communications researcher at Duke University.
23: I would sure love to know where the young birds are getting information about what the geographic specific um, signal is.
22: One possibility is that they just watch other birds and learn from their elders, much like their human partners do. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News.
9: This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered in just about 10 minutes on this first night of Hanukkah, Boston-area rabbis talk about the Jewish Festival of Lights coming against the backdrop of Israel's war with Hamas. In sports, Patriots are in Pittsburgh to play the Steelers in Thursday night football. Tonight, Pats are looking to snag their third win of the season. And at the Garden, the Bruins host the Sabres. Boston has won its last three games. Sabres have lost their last four. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by
8: Fidelity Investments. Reminding you, it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com uFund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, Member NYSE, SIPC, and the Harvard Art Museums. With over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries, free admission every day. Open Tuesday through Sunday, harvardartmuseums.org.
2: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chinoy. I'm
24: Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On
0: Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. This
24: is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong.
2: I'm
0: Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's Here and Now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks.
16: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Texas, a judge says he will allow a woman to have an emergency abortion. As Olivia Aldridge of member station KUT tells us, the case has put a spotlight on the state's highly restrictive abortion law.
3: The Center for Reproductive
21: Rights filed a suit this week on behalf of Kate Cox, a woman pregnant with a fetus that has a condition that is almost always lethal. Cox's doctors said delivering the baby would endanger her health and ability to carry future pregnancies. Judge Maya Garra-Gamble said she would grant Cox a temporary restraining order permitting an abortion under the emergency medical exception to Texas's abortion laws.
24: The idea, this
21: law, might actually cause her to lose that ability is uh, shocking and would be
25: a, a genuine miscarriage of justice.
21: Cox versus Texas marks the first time a woman has sued the state to have an abortion since the procedure was banned in Texas. For NPR News, I'm Olivia Aldridge in Austin.
16: The white house says time is running out and it cannot promise ukraine that more help is on the way until congress approves the aid funding republicans blocked an aid package worth tens of billions of dollars because the bill didn't include restrictions on immigration and asylum requests white house national security council spokesman john kirby says congress needs to reach an agreement now we've got a, a few more weeks here and then
8: we're out of schlitz when it comes to helping ukraine with the kind of security assistance that we've been able to provide. Um, and that's just, that, that should be unacceptable to
3: everybody.
16: The bill to provide new security assistance to Ukraine as well as Israel was blocked by Republicans in the Senate yesterday as they press for tougher measures to control immigration at the southern border. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A New Hampshire man is being held without bail after facing charges that he caused a crash in Waltham yesterday. that killed a police officer and a utility worker. Peter Simon today pleaded not guilty to manslaughter and other charges. WBUR's Fausto Menard has more.
25: Prosecutors say Simon was speeding away from a collision with another vehicle when he crashed his pickup truck into a worksite along Totten Pond Road. National Grid employee Roderick Jackson and Waltham police officer Paul Tracy were killed. Outside Waltham District Court today, Jim Tracy remembered his brother.
16: Anybody who knew him, his laughter, his compassion,
26: it will be missed.
25: Simon has a long criminal history. He's being held pending a dangerousness hearing scheduled for next Thursday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard.
0: Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, is applauding the Biden administration's latest warning to pharmaceutical companies. The administration says it might cancel patent protection if prices on drugs developed with taxpayer money are too high. Warren says this is a critical step to lower costs and to rein in abuses by the pharmaceutical industry. And the 82nd anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor is being marked today in Boston. A remembrance was held at the USS Constitution Museum, and there was a wreath-laying ceremony on the warship USS Caseen Young in Charlestown. The destroyer honors Navy Commander Kaysen Young for his actions during the Pearl Harbor attack. The forecast is coming up. WBR supporters include the
8: Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston.
0: Learn more at tbf.org. A nice night ahead, but a cold one, down around 24 degrees. For tomorrow, we should have sunny skies, temperatures in the low 40s. And then for the weekend, right about 50 degrees on Saturday with sunshine. Sunday should be cloudy, high temperatures around 60. It's 435.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Center for Audit Quality, committed to enhancing public trust in the economy through assurance. Auditors are serving investors, small businesses, and working Americans. Learn more at the CAQ.org. And from the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available
3: at SciSimmsFoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
27: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. At the Republican debate in Tuscaloosa, Alabama last night, the knives were out for Nikki Haley. I
3: mean, Nick, if
14: you can't tell the difference between where Israel is and the U.S. is on a map, I can have my three-year-old son show you
20: the
16: difference. Her donors, these Wall Street liberal donors, they make money in China. They are not going to let her be tough on China, and she will cave to That's the the donors. first
14: debate. She said that only a woman can get this job done. That's what she
27: said.
2: I love all the attention, fellas. Thank you for that. <laughs>
27: Haley is getting a lot of the attention because she is increasingly seen as a viable alternative to Donald Trump, who is leading the Republican field by leaps and bounds. One of the reasons she is seen as an alternative is because the Koch network endorsed her recently. The political
3: network founded by the billionaire Koch family has endorsed Nikki Haley. Americans for Prosperity action, the
28: political arm of Koch's network, network, are out with a new ad in support of the former UN ambassador. Americans for Prosperity
13: made the endorsement, calling Haley the best Republican candidate to quote, turn the page on the current political era.
27: That endorsement comes with a lot of money in what is sure to be a multi-billion dollar election. And that is notable because women have historically lagged behind men in fundraising. That gap, the reasons behind it, and what it means for women's political viability is the work of Kira Sanbonmatsu. She's a political scientist at Rutgers Center for American Women and Politics. When we spoke recently, she took me through some of the reasons why this has been a problem and what the support of an organization like the Koch Network could mean for Nikki Haley.
1: Financial support so important. It helps put you on the map as a candidate. Historically, we know that it's been harder for women to raise money. They didn't always have the financial backing. They weren't the incumbents. Um, People know that men can win office. They're automatically seen as viable. Sometimes it can be harder for women to establish their viability. For that reason, we haven't had a woman president. We didn't have a lot of women in Congress or serving as governors. And it took women forming their own organizations and donor networks such as Emily's List, uh, ViewPack, Higher Heights for America, to establish networks, funding streams, and women's political action committees. And those efforts have been successful, powering a record number of women in Congress today.
27: What kind of disparity are we talking? Can we put numbers on this?
1: One thing that we're seeing at the state level. We just released a report called The Donor Gap. And what we're seeing there is that although women um, can raise as much as men for their races, women are still underrepresented as donors. Uh, Men are out giving women two to one when you look at the money raised for state elections. So women's voices aren't heard to the same extent as men's in terms of political contributions. And then at the candidate level, if you're not an incumbent, it's harder to raise money and women are less likely to be the incumbents.
27: You nodded to some of the groups that are dedicated to changing this, to lifting up female candidates, uh, groups like Emily's List, leading the charge. Um, are we able to measure how much of a difference they make in trying to level the playing field, or at least start to?
1: Those organizations have been really critical to helping fuel women's campaigns, and what they figured out is women need early money because to be seen as a credible candidate, you need to raise money. And then once you're able to raise money, you're seen as a credible candidate. And so there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. And Mm so these funding streams have been
27: really significant. And how much has it changed? I'm thinking back to 1992. I was in college. It was the alleged year of the woman. Um, 30 years on, God help us, 30 years on <laughs> since I was in college. How much has the landscape shifted? Oh, it's shifted a lot.
1: These organizations have been really important, and women candidates can be really successful financially. You know, we can think of races where women are outraising men. Um, and we are seeing a record number of women in Congress. And I think that the presidential space is tougher. It's uh, They're more expensive races, and we have yet to elect a woman president.
27: Yeah. So let's focus on Nikki Haley, uh, the female candidate who has just pulled in the funding from the Koch network. What kind of impact do you imagine that having on her profile, on her message, on her ability to win votes?
1: this endorsement is already having an impact you see um, that it's attracting additional financial support we know that she's gaining in terms of the polls and what it does is it shows that she's a credible candidate that she's worthy of further investment Um, and this has been hard for Republican women, we see many more Democratic women holding office. It was Hillary Clinton um, who came close to winning the presidential election. We have yet to see the Republican Party nominate a woman for president. So what this signals is that she's a serious candidate, that she should attract more resources. So it's, a, it's an important development.
27: To the importance of timing. We are five, six weeks out from the Iowa caucus, the first GOP presidential primary for 2024. Um, To what extent is the timing of this uh, endorsement important to Nikki Haley's campaign?
1: It's an important endorsement. It's late in the game. But on the other hand, no one has voted yet. Um, And so as the Republican field winnows, if she can emerge here um, in one of these early states, it'll be significant for her.
27: What about some of the other people starting to um, work on Nikki Haley's behalf? I'm thinking of Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, just gave $250,000 to Nikki Haley's super PAC. Now, he is a Democratic mega donor. He supports Biden. He's open about that. How unusual is this?
1: Well, I think we are in some unusual political times. Uh, Donald Trump is not a a usual candidate and there is a pro-democracy movement uh, afoot and so i think that nikki haley will take as she has said support from all corners people like to get involved for a number of reasons they have they want to win but they also care who's in office they want to express their views and sometimes you get involved because you are opposed to another candidate. So that's what our elections are about. So there can be a variety of of motivations.
27: What are you going to be watching for as you try to gauge whether uh, it may in fact be possible for Haley?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to see whether this endorsement and how much of an effect this endorsement has in attracting additional money. It's this kind of early endorsement that women haven't typically had access to early in presidential campaigns. And so it'll be interesting to watch whether more money follows
27: and more support follows. Kira Sanbenmatsu of Rutgers University and the Center for American Women and Politics. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR. A 22-foot menorah is being lit this afternoon on Boston Common to celebrate the first night of Hanukkah. This year, the Jewish Festival of Lights comes as Israel's war in Gaza draws growing criticism and as reports of anti-Semitism are on the rise. WBUR's Simone Rios spoke to Boston-area rabbis about this ancient holiday taking place at a divisive time for Jews and non-Jews.
29: Light one candle for the Maccabee children Give thanks that their light didn't die
12: just before Shabbat service at Temple Israel in Boston, musicians rehearse songs for the eight nights to come. Smiling on, Rabbi Elaine Zecker says, with the tension Jews are experiencing, Hanukkah for some comes with greater significance.
29: We have to believe, especially in this time, in this moment in the calendar year, that there is more love than hate that there is more belief in the goodness of people than the hatred of people. Hanukkah
12: is considered a minor holiday in Judaism. In some families in Western countries, it's a lot about giving Jewish kids a chance to celebrate and receive gifts during a season of omnipresent Christmas. But Secker says it's about much more than that. She explains that the holiday marks an uprising against Greek rulers who sought to ban Judaism. They tried to rename the temple in Jerusalem in honor of the Greek god Zeus.
29: The basic story is that in the midst of oppression, in the midst of being prevented from celebrating and being Jewish, the minority rose up over the majority to be able to celebrate.
12: But Hanukkah comes at a fraught time this year. Two months ago, Hamas fighters killed some 1,200 people in Israel, marking the deadliest attack on Jews since the Holocaust. And Israel's ongoing military response has left more than 16,000 dead in Gaza, according to health officials there. Here in the States, the war has sparked angry protests on school campuses and in the streets. Emotions are running high on all sides, with evidence of anti-Muslim and anti-Jewish rhetoric both on the rise. Rob Lykand heads the American Jewish Committee's New England office.
30: Something is afoot that makes us more vulnerable, and all of a sudden there's a sense that we have to be careful
12: now. And Lycan says Jewish
30: places of worship are on alert. When synagogues have large numbers of people attending, they're going to bring in security. Many synagogues, which always had their doors open from early, early in the morning till late at night, now they're all locked. Everywhere you go, they're locked.
12: At Congregation Beth Shalom of the Blue Hills in Milton, visitors are being asked to let the office know before showing up at the temple. Beth Shalom's rabbi, Alfred Benjamin, says the need for security precautions goes way back in Jewish history. Hanukkah is an example. Tradition says families should display a menorah or Hanukkiah, but only if it's safe. In the codes, in the rabbinic codes, there's a caveat that we
25: shouldn't put the Hanukkiah in the window during times of persecution,
12: where the result of having that in the window could bring danger. But Benjamin says he's not going to cower or tell people not to display their menorahs. It is a mitzvah. It is uh, considered part of the tradition
25: that when a person lights the Hanukkah menorah, the Hanukkiah, that they put it in the window. uh, And that's in order to, so to speak, advertise the holiday, advertise the miracle of the oil burning the eight days. Yeah,
3: Yeah, different dreidels in here.
12: And we display our our menorahs in the windows. In Milton, Meredith Talbot and her husband, David Litvak, sit at their kitchen table, displaying the four menorahs they've collected over the years. Litvak says they're the only Jewish household in a neighborhood of homes with twinkling trees in the windows.
24: One of the things that distinguishes our house is that it's so dark because everyone else has uh, a lot of lights and a lot of Christmas lights, which we don't have. But Hanukkah is a time when we can put our menorahs, our lights in the window
12: and embrace our Judaism and also kind of share in the, in the light of the street. Both Litvak and Talbot are doctors, and they say since the war began, anti-Israel and frequently anti-Jewish sentiments have surfaced in many aspects of their lives. Litvak says that's why he has more resolve this year to display their menorah in the window.
24: I don't have reservations. I'd say uh, right now it's the opposite. I desperately want to show that I'm Jewish.
12: Litvak says at a time when many Jews are feeling isolated, Hanukkah gives a reason to come together with friends and family and to connect on a deeper level with the Jewish community. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. WBUR
28: supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start First Night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash firstnight. And the Provider Group, an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high-net-worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety
0: Insurance. ProviderIG.com. 30 degrees now in Boston, and overnight tonight should be down around 24 degrees. Tomorrow, making it to 40, a sunny, dry day. Saturday is looking partly sunny, inching up to about 50 degrees. Then for Sunday, clouds later in the day, maybe a rainstorm could hit 60 degrees on Sunday. Again, 31 degrees in Boston at 449.
28: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen. With a goal of delivering holiday catering, everyone will keep talking about. FreshCityKitchen.com. And the Museum of Science. Experience the heart of New England, a giant screen film showcasing this iconic region. See it only on IMAX, MOS.org. And Volante Farms, now accepting Christmas orders, cuts from their butcher shop, plus sides and desserts made from scratch in their farm kitchen,
6: volantefarms.com.
31: I'm Peter O'Dowd, carbon removal startups want
6: to offset emissions from parts of the economy that are hard to decarbonize, like aviation. Can we trust them?
21: It is essential for startups to be enthusiastic about their prospects. I'm always kind of advocating for a little bit of like sobriety, a little bit less enthusiasm.
6: Next time on Here and Now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. From
9: NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
3: And I'm Elsa Chang. Donald Trump looked on today as an expert witness bolstered a key element of the former president's defense. The witness said categorically that he found no evidence of accounting fraud in Trump's books. And he admonished the New York attorney general's office for, quote, making up allegations. NPR's Andrea Bernstein was there and joins us now. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so it sounds like Trump got some backup for his defense today, huh?
15: Yes. Trump's lawyers called as their penultimate witness Dr. Ellie Bartov, a highly credentialed accounting professor from New York University who had once served as an expert witness for the New York Attorney General's office. <laughs> okay. And Bartov just jumped right in, saying, quote, There is no evidence whatsoever for accounting fraud. He sounded like a classroom professor, repeating phrases and saying things like parts of the Attorney General's complaint, quote, border on the absurd, and that, quote, no valuations are objective because they are by definition opinions. He added, if somebody tells you an evaluation is objective, they need to have their head examined. And the witness said that a disclaimer in Trump's statements of financial condition makes it clear that no one should take them at face value. And this was so obvious even his nine-year-old granddaughter could understand.
3: Interesting testimony. Okay, so how did the AG's office respond
15: to all of that? They really wanted to make it clear that Professor Bartov is not an expert in banking or real estate valuations. At one point, point, Assistant Attorney General Kevin Wallace objective, saying, quote, this is pure speculation from somebody they hired to say whatever they want, at which point Bartow turned to Wallace and said, quote, you should be ashamed, you make up allegations, and you say, I say whatever I want, you should be ashamed of yourself talking to me like that, which is of course highly unusual (laughs) for a witness. This was right before lunch, and I did catch Trump lawyer Alina Haba smiling as she turned to leave.
3: And am, am I understanding this correctly? Trump stayed all day to hear this witness.
15: Yes, even though it got quite repetitive. Trump knows that when he's in the courtroom, we, the press, are there. And we heard Professor Bartov saying the kinds of things that Trump likes to say, like, I've never seen a financial statement that provided so much detail. And then, of course, there are all those TV cameras out in the hallway capturing Donald Trump's words when he leaves and when he says things like, he should be in Iowa campaigning. Now, of course, he could be in Iowa. He is here fully by his own choice. So
3: what's next for Trump in this trial?
15: So in action outside of this courtroom, Trump got some relief today when an appeals court panel affirmed a judge's decision from earlier this fall that the dissolution of Trump's business would remain on hold until this trial is over. You might remember that before the trial even began, the judge found on one cause of action for the attorney general and said that Trump would have to start canceling his business certificates. But that was paused and Trump has also uh, lost his efforts so far to overturn a gag order that prevents him from disparaging the judge's clerk. Trump's lawyers had complained that this violated Trump's First Amendment rights, but both the trial judge and an appeals panel have ruled otherwise, which means when Trump testifies on Monday, he won't be able to go after the judge's clerk from the witness stand. That'll be the last day of the defense case. After that, a day of rebuttal, followed by briefs and final arguments in court in January. Sometime mid-next month, maybe just before or after the Iowa caucuses, a verdict.
3: (laughs) A lot coming up. That is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Thank you, Andrea.
15: Thank
27: you.
9: Of all the films being mentioned as Oscar contenders this fall, the coming-of-age satire Poor Things May Be the Strangest. It stars Emma Stone, Willem Dafoe, and Mark Ruffalo, and it has a story that critic Bob Mondello says is what you might expect if Mary Shelley had written Frankenstein as a sex comedy.
17: We begin in a steampunk-stylized Victorian London. Willem Dafoe's scarred but charismatic Professor Godwin Baxter comes home from his anatomy classes to the cheerful sound of dinner plates shattering and a delighted screech from his ward, Bella, who leaps into his arms quite as if she were not a fully grown woman. Then she turns to the grad student Godwin's brought home as his assistant.
30: Bella, this is Mr. McCandles. Hello,
17: Bella. He sticks out his hand, and Bella regards it, then punches him in the nose. Bud. Blood. Emma Stone's childlike Bella knocks for a loop pretty much everyone she meets, though not always this directly. She is, as Rami Youssef's sweetly attentive McCandles will discover, healthy and curious.
2: Bella want look good world.
17: I don't think we're allowed up here. A product of one of Godwin's experiments.
30: She's progressing at an accelerated pace.
17: Who is still she puzzling is out how her body works, especially when she discovers it. Oh. Bella! Its <gasps> most celebrated pleasure center.
12: In polite society, that is not done. Uh.
17: Godwin's been fiercely protective of Bella and, ironically, ends up undoing that protection by hiring a lawyer to codify it. Played by a louche Mark Ruffalo, the lawyer turns out to be a cad. Bella
22: not safe with you, I think. You are
32: absolutely not.
17: He spirits Bella away for a sensual odyssey on which she takes immense delight in the joys of rich pastries.
32: Who made this? We more.
26: No more. One's enough. And more's too much.
17: And a bedroom activity she refers to as furious jumping.
8: Why do people not just do this all the time?
17: But funny thing, the more emancipated and knowledgeable Bella grows, the more resistance she gets from the men in her life. You're always reading now, Bella. You're losing some of your adorable hips speaking.
0: I'm a changingable feast,
3: as are all of we, apparently, according to Emerson.
17: Working in both black and white and vibrantly clashing colors, Greek filmmaker Yorgos Lanthimos makes Poor Things a Candide like odyssey of female empowerment, taking his heroine from cosseted innocence to a Parisian brothel. It is your body, Bella Baxter,
32: yours to give freedom.
3: I generally charge 30 francs
17: Well... That seems low. Anchoring what might otherwise feel like a fairy tale is a downright fearless Emma Stone going from herky-jerky awkwardness to grace, always with a kind of innocence about social convention, say spitting out food at a fancy dinner.
26: Why I keep it in my mouth if it is revolting? I must go punch that baby.
17: If you've not yet encountered this director's weirdness in, say, The Favourite, his Oscar-winning Mad Queen tale that also featured Stone, treat yourself and know that the eccentricity he brought to his previous very odd films was just a warm-up.
8: I am finding being alive fascinating.
17: Here, the design work is eye-popping from a toy-like cruise ship Bella set sail on, to the Egyptian castle where she learns of poverty and cruelty. With every corner of the screen teeming with surprises, Bella's home, say, populated with the duck goats and dog hens that you'd expect an experimental surgeon's ward to have as pets. And ever at poor thing's center in puffy sleeves that look almost architectural, stands this breathtaking creation who has built herself from scratch.
24: A woman plotting
17: her course to freedom. A woman for whom the world is fresh and new and unfailingly magical, much like the exhilarating film that surrounds her. I'm Bob Mandela.
3: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
19: Support for NPR comes from the station and from Total Wine & More, where customers can find gifts for people on their list, from a cabernet to single-barrel bourbon. TotalWine.com spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina, available to adults 21 or older. From Drexel University, whose cooperative education program works to empower students to explore future careers and discover their ideal profession before graduation, this is experiential education. More at drexel.edu. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CitySide Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd, and Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker, Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org.
21: I'm WBUR Arts and Culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org.
0: WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Biden administration is putting pressure on Israel to reduce casualties in the war on Gaza, but many Israelis have hardened their stance.
32: You can hear people that used to be like moderate or or define themselves as part of the peace camp. They are now saying, it's us or them.
0: Israel pushes back on a staunchest ally. This is all things considered. Lisa Mullins also coming up, how deals reached in the first half of the U.N. climate conference could help developing countries confront climate change. The Biden administration has pursued closer ties with India,
33: despite concerns about India's human rights record. There has been a tension between how the U.S. sees India as a strategic actor and what it thinks of India's political character.
0: Also ahead, the most mispronounced words of 2023. It's 5.01.
31: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Ukraine security services say they were behind the assassination of two Ukrainian politicians who were collaborating with Russia. NPR's Joanna Kikisys reports from Kiev that one man was killed in Russia, the other in Russian-occupied eastern Ukraine.
2: Ilya
21: Kriva was a former Ukrainian lawmaker who called for Ukraine to surrender to Russian troops during the full-scale invasion in February 2022, when Ukraine resisted he fled to russia he was wanted in ukraine for treason kiva was shot dead in a village about 250 miles southwest of moscow in televised remarks a spokesman for ukraine's military intelligence said others who collaborate with the kremlin will meet the same fate ukraine also admitted it was behind the killing of Oleh popov a pro-russian official in russian-occupied eastern ukraine who died in a car bomb on wednesday joanna kakissis NPR News, Kiev.
31: In Washington, the Justice Department has announced charges against two Russians for a long-running campaign that hacked into computer networks in the U.S. and allied countries. Prosecutors say the pair were acting on behalf of the Russian government, as NPR's Ryan Lucas reports.
18: One of the defendants, Ruslan Peretyatko, is identified as an officer in Russia's FSB security agency. The other is Andrei Korenetz. The indictment says they conducted a sophisticated spear-phishing campaign targeting current and former members of U.S. spy agencies, the Pentagon, the State Department and the Department of Energy. They also allegedly targeted British political figures, researchers and journalists, in some cases successfully. Prosecutors say the Russians leaked stolen data to the press in Russia and Britain ahead of the U.K.'s 2019 election. Both defendants are believed to be in Russia. The U.S. Treasury also announced sanctions against the pair. In a coordinated move, the British government says it has as well. Ryan Lucas, NPR News,
31: Washington. Fierce fighting reported today in Gaza around the southern city of Khan Yunis. Tens of thousands have been displaced, and deliveries of food, water, and other aid have been cut off. Republican candidates debated last night at the University of Alabama. Once again, without Donald Trump, who was still the front-runner for the nomination. But NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports that one candidate may have further cemented her emergence as the top Trump alternative.
14: Nikki Haley was parrying attacks from her rivals all night. And when that happens, it's pretty clear who the other candidates perceive as the biggest threat. The former Trump U.N. ambassador has been surging in polls lately and piling up endorsements and money, but she still has a significant challenge in trying to make up the gap with Trump. To do that, she likely needs to win over some Republican voters who are currently saying they're sticking with the former president, and there isn't much time left with 39 days to go now until voting begins in Iowa. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News,
31: Washington. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9
0: WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell has filed a complaint against a neo-Nazi group for demonstrations it's held over the past three years. As WBR's Deborah Becker reports, Campbell's complaint targets the group known as NSC-131.
28: The charges in the complaint include civil rights violations for demonstrations the group allegedly held at hotels housing migrant families and at LGBTQ events. The AG also says NSC 131 escalated its protests to, quote, shut down activities that the group claims are harmful to the interests of white New Englanders. According to the Anti-Defamation League, NSC stands for National Socialist Club.
1: Peggy Shuger is with the ADL. Really want to commend the attorney general for using the laws to the fullest extent possible to hold this hate group of neo Nazis
28: accountable. The AG's complaint is seeking a jury trial. For ninety point nine
0: WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Moore Healy says the number of migrant families arriving in Massachusetts is dropping. Today on WBUR's Radio Boston, Healy says there have been fewer new arrivals at Logan. Some of it, I think, has to do with the with the weather. We've had
8: families who have been staying and housed in Florida and in Virginia who left to come here, some of whom
0: have now returned. So... You know, it's a situation that's very fluid. Governor Healy put new restrictions on the state's family shelter system, which temporarily houses migrants in hotels and motels. She did so after it started to run out of space and money. She says she's pressuring the Biden administration for more resources. And an independent report made public today says the morgue at Harvard Medical School needs to tighten security, increase employee training and update its system to track donated cadavers. Harvard ordered the review following the arrest of the morgue's former manager, Cedric Lodge, in May. He's accused of stealing and selling body parts. Families of those who donated their bodies are suing Harvard. A dry, clear, and cold night on the way tonight. The mid-20s at the lowest. Tomorrow starts a bit of a warming trend. Sunny skies to close out the work week. Temperatures could top 40 degrees. 31 now in Boston at 5.06.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org.
3: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. As countries negotiate how to deal with a warming planet, there is a central tension. Big, wealthy nations contributed most to the problem by emitting lots of carbon, and smaller, poorer countries feel outsized impacts, even though they didn't do much to bring about this crisis. So who should pay to deal with loss and damage to the smaller countries? That's one of many questions at the heart of this year's UN Climate Conference, COP28. The annual summit is taking place in Dubai this year, and Janine Felsen of Belize is there negotiating on behalf of small island nations. Welcome.
26: Thank you very much.
9: Before we talk specifically about these negotiations, just to give us a sense of what's at stake, can you tell us one or two ways that you are already seeing climate change impact Belize?
26: Well, Belize is seeing regular impacts from climate change, whether it's in variability in precipitation patterns, sudden impacts from hurricanes or from storm surges. And most significantly, I think, is the impact that climate change is having on our reef, Mm -hmm. which is the largest reef in the Western Hemisphere, and it is dying. And that's impacting many different things because we depend on our reef not only as a physical barrier for storm surges, but it is the source of livelihood for many Belizeans. Mm -hmm.
9: Well, in the first days of this summit in Dubai, there was a breakthrough where countries settled on how to create a loss and damage fund. Wealthier nations pledged several hundred million dollars to address the harm that climate change is doing to developing countries. I know you have been working on getting this for years. Uh, Before we get into the details of how it works, first, just how does it feel to have that agreement in place?
26: You know, it's bittersweet because the fact that we actually need a fund for loss and damage means that there are some countries who are simply not going to be able to adapt to climate impacts. At the same time, it is a demonstration of international solidarity with vulnerable countries.
9: And how will it actually work? I mean, who will decide how the money gets dispersed and to whom and for what projects?
26: It's set up like a climate fund in that it will eventually um, have a board and the board will be the one that determines what funds or how funds will be allocated. But there are certain principles underlying loss and damage, principles that ensure that we're not just going to projectize these loss and damage um, requests for funding, but in fact, we're going to try to make it so that countries can establish programs and immediately try to access funding Um, in accordance with the rules that are set up.
9: One consistent theme at these climate summits over the years has been countries making bold, ambitious promises that they then fail to keep. Uh, At the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow in Scotland two years ago, I met a Malaysian climate activist named Hailey Tan, and she told me this.
34: I hear lies and I hear broken promises. Um, As we know, President Obama has promised the Global South $100 since 2009. And yet we are in 2021 and we have not received finance.
9: And so, Janine Felsen, how worried are you that despite these pledges, the money won't actually show up?
26: Well, it is a very big concern. And indeed, we we argued every year about actually how much is on the table. But the fact of the matter is, we are certainly seeing some funding come through. Um, I think the, the big issue now is, whether or not we can bring others to the table other stakeholders who have been profiting from some of the very industries that have hurt our countries um, there are new ways that that we need to think about how we ensure that there are finance flows that are coming into countries but the person that you interviewed is right there have been many broken promises and i cannot deny that
9: Negotiations in Dubai are continuing, and I know that this is a long process and you do it every year. How will you measure the success of this conference at the end of the day?
26: That's a very hard question to answer. And and it's very hard because I come from a country, I come uh, from a group of countries um, who are not seeing any sort of relief from the impacts of climate change. And I would want to say that, you know, we leave Dubai and I can go home to the people of Belize and say, you know what, things are going to be okay for you. The truth is I can't do that. But what I can say is that we will make this effort to ensure that what we have to face in the future will be alleviated in different ways because of the cooperation and the solidarity that we have from the international community.
9: That is Ambassador Janine Felsen, a climate negotiator from Belize, speaking with us from the COP conference in Dubai. Thank you very
26: much. Thank you.
3: While Israel is fighting in Gaza, it's also trading fire regularly with Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed militia that operates in Lebanon to Israel's north. Today, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu threatened to attack Lebanon, like Gaza, if Hezbollah escalates the conflict. NPR's Brian Mann reports that many Israelis say a full-scale war with Hezbollah is inevitable.
6: I arrive at Kibbutz Le Havot HaVashan, a short drive from the Lebanon border on a beautiful spring-like afternoon. This is the Upper Galilee region in the far north, sort of the Vermont of Israel. And the first person I meet is Renan Monica.
32: I have a workshop, bike workshop.
6: For 20 years, Monica has been guiding tourists on mountain bike trips through these hills that's all stopped. Yeah, because the war now,
9: so it's a bad situation and we don't have customers, so nobody wanna come.
6: No customers and a lot fewer neighbors. Israel's government says more than 40 communities in this area have been evacuated since October 7th because of the threat of Hezbollah, which operates nearby. More than 60,000 Israelis were required to leave their homes, other families left voluntarily.
9: Now we, we just uh, half people here in the
6: kibbutz we don't know, actually, we, we're living day by day. I'm not afraid if you ask me. Do you have family? Here, yeah, yeah? of course, Your... kids and family. Kids and family. Do you ever think mm, this is too risky? Not yet, not yet, yeah. not yet. It's my place, it's my home, I born here. There were full-scale wars fought on this frontier in the 1980s and again in 2006. Both sides regularly trade artillery and sniper fire but after Hamas's attack on Israel October 7th, there's been more shooting, more rockets. Ziv Marom was also born in this kibbutz. The Galil is the most beautiful place in Israel. And it was developing and developing and developing. It was crazy how beautiful it was. And now people that live in kibbutz near the borders are not planning to come back. Marom runs a coffee shop here. Now it's mostly empty. He says people fear there might be raids on their homes by Hezbollah like the one Hamas carried out in the south. It could be the same, the same event here in the north. And uh, the Hezbollah is a stronger army than the Hamas. The fear, need grew up. When I ask what Israel should do to give them back their sense of safety, I hear one idea from people here over and over. Many want a full-scale war. I know now that we have to crush them and crush them big time, big time. They understand power, and that's what we need to show because we have power. The U.S. and other countries are scrambling to contain this war, limiting it to Gaza and Israel's already bloody fight with Hamas. But Israeli soldiers like Zohar Ben-Sushan say the danger posed by Hezbollah has risen a lot.
35: We think that they have a lot of power and more ways to um attack us and hurt the community here in the north. So it really feels like protecting my home.
6: Ben Sushan is 24, a reservist in Israel's army from the northern city of Haifa. She's based here at a forward lookout post, one of the closest defensive positions Israel's army maintains on the Lebanon border. She takes me across the muddy yard to an observation post, and Lebanon is right there.
35: You really can see um, the houses. If you just go, you can see
6: that. NPR has sent reporters to those villages, and they too are largely empty. Many Lebanese families have also fled because of the increased artillery exchanges and the heightened risk of war. Many feel without Hezbollah protecting them, Israel would invade Lebanon as it's done in the past. Ben Tushan, the Israeli soldier, says Hezbollah fighters are over there, well-armed and organized.
35: Sometimes it's also scary. One time I was in the shower and the shooting started, and it was really scary. I ran to my room and, you know, took my clothes and a weapon and went outside. So it really can attack you anytime.
6: Many Israelis who consider the Upper Galilee their home tell NPR the Israeli army's presence is comforting but not enough. They say the border is too big, too porous to defend reliably. After leaving the frontier, I stop in the city of Nazareth, a 90-minute drive away, where people evacuated from northern communities are being housed by the government in hotels. We're here already five five weeks, a little bit more than 300 people. Erez Bergman is from the Snir kibbutz. His entire community is here, men, women, and a lot of kids, including his own. He says after seeing what happened during Hamas's attack, He's thinking about leaving the North for good, to protect his family. Yes, I'm saying it uh, sadly, but yes. I do not want to make my children in a position that they are harmed. Bergman, too, says there's only one thing that will make him feel safe returning home. He wants a full-scale war that will do to Hezbollah what Israel is now trying to do to Hamas. I mean, we will fight very hard Hezbollah.
31: That's the only option. It's not a good option, but if we want to go home, and feel uh, that uh, there's nobody near the border that can threaten us or our children.
6: That's the only solution I can see. Many of the Israelis interviewed by NPR voiced impatience with their government for not already striking harder against Hezbollah. Others predicted that as soon as the fight with Hamas is over in the south, Israel's military will turn its attention here. Ryan Mann, NPR News, on the Israel-Lebanon border.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR on this Thursday afternoon. Oil prices have gone down since the Hamas attack on Israel two months ago today. We look at why they're falling coming up in about 20
5: minutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Cambridge Naturals, with a curated selection of organic groceries, natural body care and supplements, and bulk refillery. CambridgeNaturals.com.
0: An upswing on Wall Street today. The Dow rose nearly two-tenths of a percent. S&P climbed eight-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq gained one-four-tenths and of a percent. Trader Joe's plans to open a second store in Boston's Back Bay. It'll be located at 500 Boylston Street between Copley Square and the Public Garden. The 16,000-square-foot store would be the fourth Trader Joe's in Boston and the 22nd store in Massachusetts. The forecast is coming up.
5: WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org.
1: Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars.
0: Clear skies showing off a nice crescent moon tonight. Cold again down around 24 for low. Tomorrow, temperatures start to mild up. Sunny skies highs in the low 40s. Saturday could reach 50 with partly sunny skies. Then Sunday could hit 60 degrees, although it should be a cloudy day. Stormy weather late in the day on Sunday. 31 degrees now in Boston at 520.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grant Chester's Morvin Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Proctor and Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
3: And I'm Elsa Chang. Over the past couple years, the Biden administration has been fostering a closer relationship with the Indian government. For example, this past summer, President Biden gave Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi one of the highest honors for a world leader, an official state visit. While the White House has been cozying up to the Modi government, members of Biden's own party have raised concerns about human rights and religious freedoms in India. And just last week, the U.S. Justice Department announced charges against an Indian national for allegedly plotting to kill a Sikh activist in New York. Prosecutors say an Indian government official was behind the assassination attempt. We wanted to know where relations between the two countries stand and why the Biden administration is so invested in India to begin with. So we're turning to Arzan Tarapur. He's a research scholar at Stanford University focusing on South Asian security issues. Welcome.
33: Thanks very much, Elsa. Great to be with you.
3: So before we get to this indictment of the Indian national I just mentioned, I actually want to start with China. (laughs) Because China is currently the top national security threat for the U.S., right? How much is the Biden administration nurturing a closer relationship with India because they believe India would step up as an ally should there be a confrontation with China.
33: So there's clearly a heavy focus on China. And it's not just the Biden administration. It's several successive administrations that have recognized that India is an important country globally and especially in the Indo-Pacific. A large part of that is because of China itself. Parts of Washington are concerned at the prospect of a military confrontation and they hope that India will play some sort of role in that. Mm -hmm. There are big question marks over that. But aside from the military confrontation, as the US engages in strategic competition with China over the rules of the road and the shape of the international system, they recognize that India will be an important partner in helping to shape that system.
3: Okay, well, I'm going to pick up on the military element because. Some have argued that India just isn't worth the kind of investment the Biden administration is making in the relationship with India because India would not come to the U.S.'s side in a military confrontation with China. I mean, do you still see value in India and the U.S. working together to incrementally deter China?
33: Absolutely. So first of all, we have to be careful when we talk about military confrontation. It's a very big, amorphous subject right most of the time when we're talking about military confrontation between the US and China it usually is the taiwan scenario and in that i think on balance it is unlikely that india will fight for taiwan directly in mm-hmm. and around taiwan okay but as you said i think there's still a lot that india can do as a strategic actor in the region india has for decades had its own strategic competition with china they are abiding and intensifying security rivals themselves and it's in the U.S.'s interests to ensure that India has the wherewithal and the capacity to deter Chinese assertiveness and aggression and, should it come to it, to acquit itself well in a conflict against China. So it's not just about Taiwan, it's about India as a stabilising strategic actor in the region.
3: You mentioned uh, near the beginning of this conversation non-military benefits to both countries for forging a stronger relationship. But let me ask you this. Are some of these benefits coming at the expense of the democratic values that President Biden has openly advocated? You know, like if the U.S. is supporting a country such as India that has had a questionable human rights record.
33: In the U.S., there has been a tension between how the US sees India as a strategic actor in the region and in the world, and what it thinks of India's political character at home domestically. Mm -hmm. The Biden administration seeks to address that by uh, assuring its critics that it does, in fact, deliver the messages behind closed doors to India about its concerns over India's political direction. There is definitely a tension, especially from the Biden administration, that does focus on democracy. But it's a tension that I think they've sort of decided that they can handle. It's two separate parts of the brain. One part of the brain cares about democracy and speaks to the Indians behind closed doors about it. The other part of the brain cares about India's external behavior and seeks to forge ahead with an ever-tightening partnership to stabilize the Indo-Pacific.
3: Finally, I want to get into the indictment of Nikhil Gupta. He's the Indian national who's being prosecuted for allegedly plotting to kill a Sikh activist on U.S. soil. And these allegations, I mean, they came just months after Canada accused agents of the Indian government of murdering a Sikh community leader there. Prime Minister Modi responded aggressively to those accusations. Canadians were briefly barred from applying for visas to go to India, and relations between Canada and India have been pretty strained ever since. Could the same thing happen between India and the U.S.? Like, could this indictment of Gupta damage the U.S.-India relationship?
33: First of all, I don't think the same thing can happen with India and the U.S. It's already shown that it's not the same thing for two main reasons. First of all, the U.S. handled the situation much more uh, sensitively than the Canadian government did. The Canadian government made an announcement in Parliament and offered no... Uh, a shred of evidence which invited the Indians to suggest that this was a this was a false claim. The second main reason is, of course, that the U.S. matters to India much more than Canada matters to India. And so, of course, there is interest on both sides to ensure that an issue like this does not derail the deepening partnership.
3: Arzan Tarapur is a research scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. Thanks for being
33: with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Elsa.
9: I always say when I'm on the radio, I don't need to know how something is spelled. All I care about is how to pronounce it.
33: Totally, but with that
3: said, this script that we're reading has none of the usual phonetic pronouncers in it. And I'm already feeling a little bit terrified because the story that you are about to hear people is about the most commonly mispronounced words in America this year.
9: The language learning platform Babbel compiles the list and our producers asked us to read a few of these words cold off the page with zero guidance. So, Elsa, you ready? Yeah. Here's your first word. It is one of Saturn's moons. Read it off the screen.
3: Okay. (laughs) Enceladus.
9: Sounds like a vegetable (laughs) side dish. Here's NPR science correspondent Nell greenfield Boyce.
3: Enceladus. Oh, come on. I was so close. Not really. (laughs) All right, Ari, if you think you're so hot, your word is one of Mexico's most active volcanoes. Oh,
9: I think I know this one.
3: Well, here's how NPR's Mexico City Correspondent, Ada Peralta, pronounced it. (laughs) Popocatepetl. So different. Not really. Okay, come at me. Come at me. Okay,
9: Elsa, your next word is the name of the late fashion designer Karl Lagerfeld's cat.
3: Oh, 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 this looks easy. I would say, chupet. And
9: here's Lagerfeld himself saying
30: it. Chupette is mine. I don't give Chupette back.
3: Mm, Uh, hello, bingo. All right. We have time for one more, Ari. And this is the name of the singer who won American Idol this year, the first Hawaiian and Pacific Islander to do so. Mm. Mmm. Iam Tongi? Oh, let's hear the singer himself explain this one, as he did to the judges on American Idol.
12: My name is Iom Tongi. 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 You pronounce the T's like a D in the
3: Tongi oh, culture. Hmm. And this, my friend, is why we have phonetic spellings in our scripts, am I right? Also, let's go hang our heads in shame. No, you got all yours right. <laughs> it's Liza with a Z, not Lisa with an S, because Lisa with an S goes snuzz. It's Z instead of
29: S.
9: Can Liza you say NPR Z. News?
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies overnight. Tonight should be cold, about 24 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, temperatures reach the low 40s with some sunshine. Saturday could reach 50 degrees, partly sunny skies. And then Sunday could hit 60. Oh, it should be a cloudy day, maybe some. Stormy weather coming up later in the day. Patriots are in Pittsburgh to play the Steelers uh, for Thursday night football tonight. The Pats are looking to snag their third win of the season. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins host the Sabres. Boston's won its last three games. The Sabres have lost their last four. We're funded by you, our
8: listeners, and by Sincere Foundation which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at sincere.com. And Lake Champlain Chocolates. Celebrating the season with organic, fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com.
15: Hi there. It's Margaret Lowe, the CEO of WBUR, here to say thank you to everyone who gave so generously during our year-end fundraiser. We are blown away by your support, and we promise that was the last fundraiser this year. If you haven't had a chance to give yet and you'd still like to, please go to WBUR.org and click on the Donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it.
16: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Georgia, state lawmakers there have approved new political maps for Congress and the state legislature after a a federal judge found Georgia's current districts illegally dilute the power of black voters. From member station WABE, Sam Greenglass reports.
24: Republican lawmakers say they've followed the judge's instructions, and the Republican-controlled legislature has created the court-ordered number of new majority Black districts, including a congressional seat in metro Atlanta. But Republicans expect the new maps will keep their partisan advantage intact, mostly balancing out new majority Black districts by dismantling other Democratic voting districts. Democrats insist the new maps still violate the Voting Rights Act. That's now up to the courts to decide. U.S. District Judge Steve Jones has scheduled a hearing for later this month, writing that time is of the essence. If the judge does not approve the new maps, he can appoint a special master to draw them. For NPR News, I'm Sam Gringlass in Atlanta.
16: More than 700 Washington Post employees walked off the job today for a 24 hour strike. Kayla Hewitt of member station WAMU reports.
21: About 100 union members picketed outside the Washington Post offices in downtown DC. Union leaders say it's the largest labor protest at the paper in 50 years. Post employees have worked without a union contract for a year and a half. They say among other demands they want leadership to come to the table and negotiate raises commensurate with inflation, remote work policies, and a voluntary buyout program that seeks to eliminate 240 positions or about 10% of staff. In a statement a Washington Post a spokesperson said the Post's goal is to reach an agreement with the Guild that meets the needs of employees and the business. For NPR News,
0: I'm Kayla Hewitt in Washington.
16: This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The New Hampshire man charged with causing a deadly crash in Waltham yesterday is being held without bail. Today, Peter Simon pleaded not guilty to manslaughter and other charges. Prosecutors say Waltham Police Officer Paul Tracy and National Grid employee Roderick Jackson were killed when Simon crashed his pickup truck into a worksite on Pond Road. Jackson's brother, Manuel Spria Hassan, spoke about his late brother after the arraignment.
23: Anybody who knows him, the most selfless man ever. Ever. He was more than just my brother. He was my father. All right? Understand. That's the heart of this family. That's what was taken from us.
0: Simon is being held until a dangerousness hearing next week. Records show he does not have a valid driver's license. In 2017, he pleaded guilty to driving under the influence and assault and served time in prison. He also has several other criminal cases that date back to 2009. Governor Maura Healy says a new order from the Department of Public Utilities is a key step for the state to equitably reduce residents' reliance on natural gas. And as WBR's Miriam Wasser reports, the order is the culmination of a three-year process Healy began when she was Attorney General. In
21: 2020, Healy asked the Department of Public Utilities to look into whether the state and gas utilities were doing enough to plan for a future without natural gas. The department first asked the utilities to draft a plan for the future, and they came back with a controversial one that relied heavily on supposedly lower carbon fuels. Fast forward to this week, and the department flatly rejected that idea in favor of non-fossil fuel alternatives. Speaking on WBUR's Radio Boston today, Healy said the plan will help the state meet its climate goals.
8: It just stresses the importance of the need for all of us to work together, including the utilities.
21: The order also disincentivizes new gas infrastructure. For 90.9
0: WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Today, the MBTA disclosed two mishaps involving its workers. The T's chief safety officer reported that a laborer got hit in the leg by shrapnel after a tool broke last week. The next morning, a third rail on the Orange Line had the power turned back on and was electrified before a welding truck cleared the track. The Federal Transit Administration has reprimanded the MBTA several times this year for worker safety issues. The forecast is coming up. WBUR
28: supporters include Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 22nd.
0: SemesterOff.com About 24 degrees overnight tonight. Tomorrow should be sunny, up around 40. Saturday, sunshine and clouds both rising to about 50. Sunday should be gray, but weirdly warm, up around the low 60s, with uh, windswept rain coming up later in the day.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world and every purchase supports NPR's high quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. This is NPR.
3: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Under domestic and international pressure, the Biden administration has increased calls for the Israeli government to protect civilians as it goes after Hamas in Gaza. As NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from Jerusalem, the Israelis don't want a rift with the U.S., but they have other priorities.
23: Officials here have praised President Biden since he gave his full support for Israel's invasion in October. Simha Rothman is a member of the Knesset with the right-wing Religious Zionist Party.
30: I, of course, am very thankful for all the support the United States and the State of Israel fight against terror, and President Biden has made tremendous effort
23: to do so. The U.S. is arming Israel and is the country's indispensable ally. But Rothman doesn't appreciate American pressure on Israel to hold back on the battlefield and President Biden's call for an eventual two-state solution.
30: I think he should stay on the right side of history in this and that and that matter, and. Not try to push forward solutions that might appease someone but will not uh, help the safety of this region and the world? For Reuben
23: Friedman, who's 72, how Israeli forces wage war hits close to home. His house is less than three miles from the Gaza border. Hamas fighters passed by while he was hiding inside with his wife on October 7th. The battle now in Gaza
15: is in front of my house. To get Hamas out of Gaza, I think it's going to take time. How much takes to uh, USA to get out al-Qaeda from Afghanistan?
23: The Gaza Ministry of Health says Israeli attacks have killed at least 17,000 people. Images of suffering have driven outrage among many around the world. But Raviv Drucker says most Israelis see little of this in mainstream media coverage. Druker is a leading journalist here.
32: We rarely cover the suffering of Gazan uh, casualties, civilians, kids. We, don't, we rarely interview someone from Gaza. Like, why, why is that? Because the trauma is so hard. You can hear people that usually used to be like moderate or, or define themselves as part of the peace camp. They are now saying, it's us or them.
23: And Drucker says if Israeli leaders let up in Gaza, they'd pay a price.
32: Nobody in Israel can reach a decision now to stop the operation against Hamas. The leader that that will dare to even contemplate the idea of doing that is done.
23: Israel is not completely ignoring U.S. pressure. For instance, it's allowed more fuel deliveries into Gaza, even amid domestic criticism, that'll only help Hamas. And Shlomo Brom, a retired brigadier general, says American pressure can help. Fewer civilian deaths mean less suffering, and more
32: time for Israel to target Hamas. The U.S. administration, because basically they understand the uh, the strategic uh, dilemma, they will try to do whatever they can do to give Israel the time that it needs. Enbrom says the
23: White House has to consider the broader landscape as other countries challenge the U.S.-led
32: world order. And I think there is a real understanding in the U.S. administration among the people that are important uh, that Israel has to win because, Brom
23: says, U.S. rivals, Iran, Russia, China, will see an Israeli loss as an American one, too. Frank Langford, NPR News, Jerusalem.
3: All right, we hear it every election, and that is every vote counts, right? But there are still people who feel like their one vote will not change anything. Well, it turns out, in some cases, that one vote can make all the difference. Last month, in the small community of Rainier, Washington, the race for city council was tight. One candidate decided not to cast a ballot for himself. The other candidate did vote for himself. And you know what? He ended up winning the whole race by a single vote. Newly elected city council member Ryan Roth joins us now. Welcome and congratulations. Hi, right, Thank
36: you. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so I have to ask, I mean, I'm assuming it felt awesome when you found out you won. But what was your reaction when you heard that you won by only one
36: vote? It, I thought it was I thought it was wild, man. I didn't you know the. I was watching the counts um, throughout the week through the election week and month of the post on Thurston County election website. And it just, the change of it was just so rapid all the time, you know, to where we were three behind and then tied for like three or four days and all of a sudden just (laughs) one. What a nail biter. I know. I I had no idea what was going to happen if, this is my first time running, you know, so Uh I had no idea what would happen if we tied or if it was by one or, so just not knowing was, um was an intense deal.
3: Well, your opponent, Damian Green, he's the one who did not vote. And obviously that vote cost him his own election. Have you had a chance to talk to him about why he didn't vote, how he's feeling about the fact that he didn't vote?
36: Um, you know, I, I did talk to him. He he called me after the day of the recount to c- congratulate me and saying he didn't vote. And, you know, maybe he should have type of deal. But... <laughs> Either way, like he's a solid guy and we were both going the same direction with our stances on different things. So it was like like he said in a in an interview with somebody else, uh, you know, a, a win is a win type of deal and
3: Yeah. He has been really gracious about this, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I
36: mean, do you feel kind of bad for him? No. No. <laughs> I mean, why? I mean, you know, that, that's his, you know, a, opinion not to vote for himself. So that I support that, you know, that whatever yeah. you believe in, you got to stay true to that. So um, I I believe it's my American right to vote. So I'm a vote. But then I heard at one point
3: you, even though your name was on the ballot, that you yourself almost didn't turn in your ballot. What happened? Can you say why you almost didn't
36: mail in your vote? <laughs> Basically, um, I voted. I put it in my wife's purse. Cause I thought she was going to take it, you know, um, <laughs> and she didn't see it, didn't know it. And then I kept telling her and we just kind of, she told me to do it. And it uh-huh. just, you know, and then I got like, I got four kids. I, I manage a landfill at work 10 hours a day and just being busy. You know what I mean? And yeah. so I just, uh, I spaced it for the longest time and got it in like at the last day, and got it in there and
3: thank God you did.
36: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, like you said, Green has been very gracious so far. Um, I had read that he said he didn't vote because he's never been very good at tooting his own horn and that he also said a choice between you and him. I mean, it was just a win-win for voters. So I'm just curious now that you are the elected city council member, ultimately, has this whole episode changed your perspective on the importance of voting? What's the lesson you've learned?
36: Absolutely. I mean, every, every vote does count, no matter, you know, whether, whatever your belief may be. I think every vote does count. And the, the process of, you know, like counting by hand and counting with the, the votes, like just the whole process of, of that is pretty bulletproof, man. Like I had no idea what all goes into that. All the moving pieces and parts and people um, just to hold everything accountable um, was pretty cool to witness.
3: Rainier City Council Member-Elect Ryan Roth. Thank you so much and congratulations again.
36: Appreciate it. Thank you so much.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The day before Hamas attacked Israel, oil was around $83 a barrel. Today, it's below $75. Usually when there's a war in the Middle East, oil prices shoot up. So why isn't that happening now? Our colleagues Darian Woods and Waylon Wong at The Indicator from Planet Money explain.
34: The Hamas attacks in Israel on October seventh were 50 years almost to the day from the Yom Kippur War when Syria and Egypt attacked Israel. Surprise attacks came early this morning.
35: And it's that war that led to enormous repercussions throughout the global economy.
34: The Yom Kippur War was a conflict between Arab states and Israel over territory that Israel seized during an earlier conflict known as the Six-Day War. And in response to countries that supported Israel, Saudi Arabia and other Arab states declared an oil embargo. Yet this time, Arab and Gulf states haven't imposed an oil embargo. Making sense of this is Richard Bronze. Richard is an expert on how geopolitics affects oil markets.
32: I think it's extremely unlikely we get anything on the scale of the 1970s oil embargoes. We have seen Iran making some calls for an oil embargo, but that hasn't been picked up by other Middle Eastern producers or other members of OPEC more widely, and I don't think it will be.
35: Richard says there were other factors going on back in the 1970s, like Middle Eastern countries trying to wrest back control of their own oil fields after decades of Western companies owning them. Also, Western countries like the U.S. were much more dependent on Middle Eastern oil for their economies in ways that are not so acute today. Fracking, for example, means a lot of oil production happens here in the U.S. Plus, we now rely on more alternative sources of energy.
34: But what about just general disruption and chaos in the Middle East? The region is critical to global oil supplies, even though Israel and Gaza are not major producers.
32: They're surrounded by a lot of very important oil producers and a lot of the world's oil moves through places like the Strait of Hormuz off the coast of Iran through the Suez Canal. So there's lots of ways you can be worried about the potential for spillover to disrupt oil supply, but we haven't seen it yet.
35: And that brings us to the second reason for lower oil prices, which is that oil traders don't seem to think there will be a regional war spilling outside the borders of Israel and Gaza.
32: Some of the early concerns that might happen have diminished.
35: Meanwhile, supply and demand seem to be in balance around the world. This then raises the question of whether the oil market is telling us something maybe a little encouraging about the future.
34: Do these numbers from the oil market give you some comfort about lower probability of a bigger regional war
32: the oil market might be moving very quickly to an assumption that because we haven't seen an escalation or a spread of the fighting yet that it probably won't happen but i don't think we should take that as a guarantee just yet.
35: In other words, oil traders might be poring over political statements and scenarios, but just like the rest of us, they don't have a crystal ball into how this terrible war might unfold.
34: Darian Woods,
35: Waylon Wong, NPR News. Support
19: for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real time data to uncover insights, stay decision ready and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR and planning system for a changing world.
3: is All Things Considered from NPR News.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com uFund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. And The Huntington with The Heart Sellers by Lloyd Suh, and directed by May Adralis. Set on Thanksgiving 1973 through December 23rd, HuntingtonTheater.org.
0: Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, the lay of the land for the GOP candidates for president after last night's debate. Another chilly night ahead for us tonight, about 24 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny, up around 40. Saturday, sunshine and clouds both rising to about 50, and then for Sunday, should be overcast. High is about the low 60s on Sunday, 30 degrees now in Boston at 549. When it comes
24: to holiday shopping, Boston has plenty of options for those who want to avoid the big box stores and find locally made gifts. Here's a tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. If you're in for an all-day affair of shopping and eating, check out the Sowa Winter Festival or Snowport. There will be loads of vendors selling homemade goods, art, and food. For a quicker trip and something more unique, there's the Boston Women's Market, Harvard Square Holiday Fair, and Old South Church Christmas Craft Fair. For antique or vintage wares, there's Fenway Flea or the Somerville Flea Holiday Markets. To get more tips for enjoying the holidays in the city, check out WBUR's Field Guide to Boston at wbur.org slash fieldguide.
9: It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro.
3: And I'm Elsie Chang. There's a phrase we hear more and more these days, spiritual but not religious. Well, now a new study from Pew Research tries to get to the bottom of what the term spiritual means to the people who describe themselves that way. Joining me now to discuss what the survey found is NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. Hey, Jason. Hello. Okay, let's start with the reason for this whole study. Like, Why do you think they even wanted to look at spirituality among Americans?
18: Well, also the religious landscape in the U.S. in recent decades has changed dramatically. There is much greater diversity of religions in the U.S. It's still an overwhelmingly Christian country, Mm -hmm. but the portion of Jews and Muslims has grown. Many other religious groups, such as Hindus, Buddhists, much more represented in the U.S. More to the point, the lead researcher on this Pew study, Becca Alper, says they've tracked for years the decline in religious affiliation.
15: Many have tried to make sense of that. Is the U.S. public becoming more secular? Are they becoming more spiritual? And part of what motivated this research was to explore and to try and better understand spirituality among Americans and spiritual beliefs and practices and experiences.
3: Okay, so what
18: did they find? Well, Pew surveyed more than 11,000 people earlier this year. And they found that seven in 10 US adults describe themselves as spiritual in some way. About half say they're both religious and spiritual, which is to say they participate in religious institutions, as well as have personal spiritual uh, ways of thinking about the world that aren't necessarily based on a formal religious tradition. But then there's this group that we hear more and more about, 22% of U.S. adults who say they are spiritual but not religious. And until this survey, we really didn't know much about what those people actually believe. Right. I mean, what does spirituality even mean to those people? I guess I'm spiritual. I I have no idea. (laughs) Well, it means many, many things. So for the vast majority, it means, quote, being connected to something bigger than myself. Okay. Uh, Many people also say specifically means being connected to God. And then some people say it means following a religious faith. But for others, and mostly that spiritual but not religious group, spirituality means being connected to, quote, my true self. Being connected with nature, being connected with other people, being connected to loved ones who've died, also being open-minded or simply continuing family oh tradition. This is like everything. So as you can see it means many things, almost anything, some of which are associated with what we traditionally call religion. But you'll notice this common thread among those aspects of, of, of what they say when they mean spiritual is the word connected, feeling yes. connected,
3: less alone. It seems to be a big part of what it means to be spiritual. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. As someone whose job is to report on religion, what personally struck you about this survey? Well, you know, NPR first started formally
18: covering religion as a beat in the Mm mid-1990s. And back then, religion correspondent Lynn Neary reported on this emerging group of people who said they were spiritual but not religious. And this was a pretty small group. Now, that small group is nearly a quarter of U.S. adults. So it'll be, I think, increasingly important to pay attention to the ways in which people find connection to greater power with God, the earth, with each other that aren't linked to formal understandings of religion. Now, that said, religion in the U.S. is still a powerful force. Institutions like the Southern Baptist Church, the Roman Catholic Church, hold huge political and social sway. Mm -hmm. So it's really a matter of both and, covering both the powerful institutions and those quieter,
3: subtler ways in which people connect to something greater than themselves. That is NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. Thank you, Jason. You're welcome.
9: Tonight is the start of Hanukkah. The holiday commemorates an ancient military campaign in the Holy Land. And as war unfolds there today, many American Jews are thinking about how this old story resonates in the current moment. Dina Pritchup reports.
21: The Hanukkah story is the story of a Greek king who outlawed Jewish worship and desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. And a small group of Jewish rebels who fought back
6: and won. We can't help but look at what happened then and what happens is happening now in parallel terms. And that is an attempt to basically annihilate and extinguish the Jewish presence in the land of Israel.
21: Stuart Weinblatt is the rabbi of Congregation B'nai Tzedek in Potomac, Maryland, and the founder of the Rabbinic Zionist Coalition. This year, what he's taking from the Hanukkah story is the inspiration of a small band of Jews who prevailed, even, he says, when the world was stacked against them.
6: Hanukkah is a story with many different dimensions to it. Sometimes it can be one of the Rorschachs of Jewish holidays in certain respects. But ultimately, Hanukkah is the story of a battle against anti-Semites. The battle for Judaism to survive.
21: But battles aren't always black and white. Shia Cohen teaches Jewish history at Harvard University. He says these rebels, the Maccabees, took a heroic stand for Jewish survival. But the dynasty that descended from them was complicated.
36: One way to look at them down the road is that they do become religious zealots and they do become
23: persecutorial.
21: They installed themselves as priests of the temple in Jerusalem.
23: At some point, their battle was not for the temple, the battle was for themselves. They seemed to be just like everybody else, trying to establish themselves in power trying to beat up their neighbors.
21: You know, like, I feel like every year I struggle with the story, right? I don't think that I would be a Maccabee. Rabbi Alyssa Wise founded the organization Rabbis for Ceasefire after the current conflict erupted between Israel and Hamas. She says the Maccabees' use of violence in the Hanukkah story, even for the cause of religious freedom, has always been upsetting. And now... I'm too aware of the ways in which this story this year is going to be used to justify what I feel is completely unjustifiable, the gruesome cruelty that the Israeli government is enacting on thousands of innocent Palestinians. What Wise is drawing strength from this year is a different part of the Hanukkah story. In the Talmud, the rabbis kind of pivoted away from the military story of the Book of Maccabees and instead sought to put center center stage a story of a miracle. The menorah Jews will be lighting tonight commemorates this miracle. After the temple in Jerusalem was reclaimed, an oil lamp was lit to rededicate it as a holy site. The fact that a tiny jar of oil lasted long enough to keep the flame going until more oil could be made is seen as a divine miracle. But Rabbi Ayelet Cohen, dean of the rabbinical school at the Jewish Theological Seminary, says just choosing to light the lights, taking action to repair, even when the task seems doomed is a human miracle.
27: The fact that the
21: Maccabees knew there was no way the oil remaining would last for enough days, and they decided to do it anyway, meant that they were choosing hope over despair. It's that hope that Cohen says is needed this year. Some rabbis are focusing on their hope that the Jewish state will prevail, no matter the cost. Others on the hope for an end to violence now. The miracle of Hanukkah is that the light expands, that it's possible to see hope increasing, compassion increasing, possibilities for a new future increasing. That's the work of this time. And she prays that it can be the miracle of this time as well. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchip.
3: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support
19: for NPR comes from this station. And from Churchill Downs, presenting the 150th Kentucky Derby, dedicated to making memories last forever for nearly 150 years. The Kentucky Derby on Saturday, May 4th. More at KentuckyDerby.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com/slash NPR. And from Policy Genius, committed to simplifying the process of getting life insurance by providing quotes from multiple insurers side by side, including options that offer same-day approval. Learn more at policygenius.com. This is NPR.
28: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Exploring, understanding, and protecting our ocean starts with you. Help support advances in ocean science and technology for the global good. Discover how you can make a difference. More at whoi.edu slash join.
27: I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Israel is releasing evidence. A claim shows Hamas is firing rockets from areas near civilian shelters. The maps and videos are unverified so far. Meanwhile, Israel announces limited steps intended to ease the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. It's Thursday, the 7th of December. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. On this first night of Hanukkah, Boston-area rabbis talk about the Jewish festival of lights coming against the backdrop of Israel's war with Hamas. Elon Musk's erratic behavior makes for juicy headlines, but could it undermine his achievements with tech companies? Also, hundreds of Washington Post journalists are on strike as potential layoffs loom. Local news may take a big hit.
21: There is no kind of journalism more critical to the Washington Post's mission than the work of local reporters.
0: These stories are much more coming up. It's 6.01.
31: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu issued a warning today to Hezbollah, the Iran-backed militia group that operates in Lebanon near Israel's northern border. Netanyahu threatened to destroy Lebanon's capital Beirut if Hezbollah launches an all-out war. NPR's Brian Mann reports.
6: Israel's army is engaged in fierce fighting against Hamas in Gaza, but there are also regular, smaller clashes in the north with Hezbollah. In a statement, Netanyahu cautioned Hezbollah's leaders not to escalate the conflict. If Hezbollah chooses to start an all-out war, Netanyahu said, it will single-handedly turn Beirut and southern Lebanon into Gaza and Yunis. Much of Gaza and the city of Yunis have been reduced to rubble by Israeli airstrikes and artillery. Many Israelis in the north are urging the military to launch an offensive against Hezbollah. Israel's evacuated more than 40 border towns. Many Lebanese have also left villages because of the increased fighting. Brian Mann, NPR News,
31: Ramallah. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby is raising the alarm about the relationship between Russia and Iran. Iran provides drones that Russia uses to attack Ukrainian cities, and now Kirby says the administration worries that Russia could provide Iran with high-tech weapons. It's not only not good for the people of Ukraine, it's really not good for the
27: people of the Middle East. And Iran, which can get its hands on additional military capabilities, some
8: sophisticated
31: capability, only uh, makes their destabilizing activity all the more worrisome. Iranian authorities have said that military cooperation with Russia is expanding day by day. Capitol Hill Senate leaders pledged today to keep trying to reach an agreement to provide billions of dollars in new security aid to Ukraine. Yesterday, Senate Republicans blocked an emergency spending bill that included about $50 billion for Ukraine, as well as some $14 billion for Israel as it battles Hamas and Gaza. Republicans demanding concessions on immigration in the southern border. House Republicans are moving ahead with a vote next week to approve an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports that some moderates who were hesitant are now backing the action.
4: This fall, then-House Speaker Kevin McCarthy directed three House committees to launch an impeachment probe, but skipped a House vote because of splits inside his party. Now, Speaker Mike Johnson says approving an inquiry is a necessary step. Nebraska Republican Don Bacon, a moderate who had reservations before, says he will back the resolution next week.
5: When the president refuses to provide documents like he did last week and said like, because you don't have a formal inquiry, that forces our hand. I think it's just that simple. And I, I can defend an inquiry. I can't defend an impeachment right now.
4: Bacon says he thinks impeachment should be rare and there has to be a very clear high crime or misdemeanor. Democrats say Republicans have no evidence of wrongdoing and are just doing this to provide cover to former President Trump.
0: Deirdre Walsh, NPR
4: News, the Capitol.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Attorney General's office has filed a civil rights complaint against the group known as NSC-131. The state alleges the group has disrupted and intended to shut down LGBTQ events. It says members trespassed outside emergency shelters that are housing newly arrived migrants. The complaint calls those actions violent, threatening, and intimidating. The Southern Poverty Law Center classifies nsc and SC-131 as a Massachusetts-based neo-Nazi group. Governor Maura Healey says housing that's located close to transportation is a key piece of her economic vision for the state. And she says compliance with a law that requires more multifamily homes be built near T stations is mandatory.
7: Some municipalities are resisting the state mandate to change zoning to allow for more apartments, condos, and multifamilies near public transit stops. Cities and towns say they're concerned about the additional demand on their infrastructure. On WBUR's Radio Boston, Governor Healy issued a warning for not complying with the MBTA Communities Act.
8: If you don't comply with the act, um, then you're going to see us withholding as a state money for any number of of programs that that you're used to receiving money for. And that includes, you know, for schools. It includes for, for roads and bridges.
7: Healy says boosting the housing supply is a critical piece of retaining young workers and making Massachusetts more affordable. For
0: 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. For the first time, the Army-Navy football game is going to be played at Foxborough. A fan festival got underway today. It'll continue up to Saturday's game at Gillette. Patriot Place General Manager Brian Early says it's a historic moment for Army-Navy football.
12: It's only been two other times that it's been this far away from uh, the academies. football. Uh, and that was in Chicago in 1926 and Pasadena, California in 1983. So, um, you know, we've been, we've been working on this for nearly a decade uh, to bring the game here.
0: The FanFest includes performances by Naval and Army Academy bands, as well as tours of Gillette's Concourse. In the forecast, clear, dry, cold tonight down in the mid-20s at the lowest. For tomorrow, sunshine ending the work week. Temperatures could top 40 degrees. It's 6.06.
5: WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org.
3: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
5: And I'm
9: Ari Shapiro in Washington. Elon Musk is the richest person in the world. His business empire encompasses social media, space exploration, electric vehicles, and satellite communications. And those businesses are part of what's pulling him more deeply into disputes over matters of politics, war and peace, and global security. On the social media platform X, he has upset advertisers. Earlier today, he called for Disney CEO Bob Iger to be fired. NPR tech correspondent Bobby Allen and national security correspondent Greg Myrie are here to discuss Musk's entanglements. Hey, guys. Hey, Ari. Hey. Bobby, to start with you, the federal government has really come to rely on businesses that Elon Musk runs. How deep are his connections to the U.S. government?
10: You know, are we really quite deep in a number of key areas where both the federal government and the rest of the private sector have underinvested? Elon Musk has stepped in and really dominated. I mean, for instance, you know, 60 percent of the country's electric vehicle chargers are controlled by Tesla. So the Biden administration really has no other choice but to work with Musk in developing green energy policies. Another Musk company, SpaceX, operates the only U.S.-made rockets that can send astronauts to the International Space Station. So through Tesla and SpaceX, Musk's companies have been awarded, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in federal contracts. Um, With the work Musk is doing, sometimes there's no other alternative. So the federal government just can't disentangle itself from the Musk empire.
9: And with X, formerly known as Twitter, Musk also runs what, at least until recently, had been one of the Internet's main town squares. How is that company doing, given all the debate around it?
10: Not well. When it comes to electric vehicle innovation and reusable spaceships, Musk is indeed something of a business genius, right? But a social media company is just a different beast. And Musk has, as we know, completely upended X with policies aimed at making it more of a so-called free speech platform, but... He hasn't been able to make the company less rely on advertising. About 90 percent of the company's revenue comes from advertising. That's how they keep the lights on, which is a big problem now, Ari, because major corporations are fleeing in droves in response to a number of controversies. In particular, his endorsement of an anti-Semitic post. And recently he cursed out advertisers who have left with the F word. We don't know exactly how much pain x is in right now but many big advertisers have left apple coca-cola disney walmart the list goes on so they're in trouble right now
9: greg how did Musk go from being a business titan to being so prominent in international politics?
11: We, we really saw this take off when Russia invaded Ukraine last year. Ukraine faced a real challenge with frontline battlefield communication, so it publicly asked Musk on Twitter, ironically, if he could help. Musk jumped in immediately and provided Starlink. This is a satellite internet system, uh, and he gave it to Ukraine's military for free. And it was a real lifesaver for, for the military It'll allowed them to communicate among themselves, gather intelligence on the Russians, and do all this in in frontline areas where otherwise they would have pretty much been blind. Now I spoke about this with Dmitry Alperovitch, head of the think tank Silverado Policy Accelerator, and he follows the war very closely.
12: I think Starlink has been absolutely existential. I cannot imagine how the Ukrainians would continue this fight without being able to use Starlink. It is absolutely critical for their success.
9: Um, It seems like this would make
11: Musk a hero in Ukraine, right? Well, initially, until about a year ago when he changed his tune and and started making very favorable noises about uh, Russia and its leader, Vladimir Putin. Musk called for peace negotiations. He tweeted his own peace proposal, which called for giving away Ukrainian territory like Crimea. So this outraged Ukrainians. And Musk also threatened to cut off Starlink, which he said was costing him several hundred million dollars a a year. So this led the Pentagon to jump in and work out a deal announced this summer where it now pays for Starlink. So this has been resolved, but the Pentagon deal again reflects Musk's growing ties with the U.S. government. He also made a visit to Israel. What happened there? So after Hamas attacked, Musk, uh, back in October, Musk went on X and he reposted a statement by someone else that said, quote, Jewish communities push hatred against whites. And so this ignited a firestorm and it, it came amid growing criticism that anti-Semitic comments were being widely spread on X. So Musk went to Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu showed him around uh, southern Israel, communities ravaged by Hamas attacks. And this brings us to this recent interview at an event hosted by the New York Times. Yeah, and remind us what he said there. Well, he apologized for his uh, anti-Semitic post, and he said that might literally be the worst and dumbest post I've ever done. Here's a bit more of what he said.
13: The Jewish people have been persecuted for thousands of years. Everyone here has seen the 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 massive demonstrations Mm -hmm. for Hamas in every major city in the West. That should be jarring.
11: So we should note that that many people at these rallies said they were there to support Palestinians, not Hamas. Point is, Musk was trying to mend fences with the Jewish communities, yet at this very same event, he went off the rails and made incendiary comments at at advertisers who've uh, stopped uh, doing business with X. As we
9: mentioned saying today that Bob Iger should be fired as CEO of Disney. Uh, Bobby, Musk said recently
10: that the advertiser exodus could make X fail. Is that true? In short, we we just don't know. Musk taking the company private last year meant its financials are no longer publicly available. But, you know, Ari, for months now, Musk has floated this idea of filing for bankruptcy, which could help him uh, reorganize the company's debt and maybe renegotiate the terms of the billions of dollars of debt he he took out to buy Twitter. But uh, you know, some have speculated that perhaps Musk is deliberately trying to kill the company. We don't have any proof of that, but uh, you know, and in intentionally devaluing an asset could get him into some trouble. Well, legally, it is within the realm of possibility that X could go bankrupt, that Musk just cuts his losses and moves on. But if we know one thing about Elon Musk, it's that he doesn't always give up so quickly. So X's future is just really up in the air right now. I should add this. I reached out to Musk for comment and I haven't heard back.
9: NPR's Bobby Allen and Greg Myrie. Thank you. Sure thing, Ari.
3: Okay, Republicans debated for a fourth time last night in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And for a fourth time, they did so without the frontrunner in the race, Donald Trump. So, did anyone stand out with just over a month to go before voting begins in this Republican primary? Well, to help us answer that, let's bring in NPR's senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro, who watched the News Nation debate and has some thoughts. Hey, Domenico. Hey, good to be with you, Elsa. Good to be with you. Okay, so what was your biggest takeaway from what you saw last night?
14: I mean, I think it's become pretty clear that Nikki Haley emerged as the frontrunner of the candidates running who aren't named Trump. You know, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy went after her repeatedly, sometimes particularly from Ramaswamy, with some pretty mean-spirited attacks. At (laughs) one point, after criticizing her for how she's made and raised money, Ramaswamy held up a notepad that said Nikki equals corrupt, scribbled on it. Let's listen to how Haley dealt with this Ramaswamy attack. Having two X chromosomes does not immunize you from criticism. Thank
15: you, sir. Thank you. Governor Haley, would you like to respond? (laughs) No,
1: it's not worth my time to respond to him.
14: You know, and that sort of tells you everything about her place in the race as compared to some of these others.
3: Well, I mean, maybe Haley did establish herself, but she still has Trump to contend with. And I mean, she's still pretty far behind him, right? (laughs)
14: Yeah, they all are. I mean, there's just 39 days to go until the Iowa caucuses and they're, you know, 30 points or more <laughs> behind him in the polls. Wow. And it's not just Trump that Haley has to contend with. First, she has to get past DeSantis, who staked his candidacy on Iowa. Haley's doing better in New Hampshire. But for either of them to be able to go head to head with Trump, one of them has to leapfrog the other. Um, their campaigns and super PAC supporting them know this, and that's why they're targeting each other on stage and in ads. DeSantis's team feels like he had a strong debate. He was certainly. Aggressive, But the question is, was that coming from a place of strength or weakness? And can either he or Haley um, close the gap with Trump without much time
3: remaining? Yeah, I mean, speaking of Trump, he was a no show again. Why does he keep insisting on skipping these debates? And how much does he figure or did he figure into this particular debate?
14: Yeah, I mean, his team just doesn't see any advantage in debating these candidates. With a lead like he has, they want to create an air of inevitability around him. And you could tell, at least for former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, that there was a sense of urgency about this. He really pressed DeSantis, for example, to answer whether Trump should be president again, not not just that
12: he's too old.
16: You Is have your, you have no. your, thing. Is you have your thing.
12: no, I don't have my thing.
5: We don't use
12: the thing.
14: Is
16: we, he we do fit not or isn't want
5: to he? do You're talking that's about him being 80, 80 years it doesn't old. Mean that somebody Is couldn't fit get elected.
14: Well, no, a lot of crosstalk there, but mm-hmm. yeah, DeSantis uh, at the end of the day didn't answer that question. And it's really emblematic of how lightly these candidates, other than Christie, have really treaded when it comes to Trump. You know, Haley was critical of Trump on the debt and China, DeSantis on not on Trump not finishing the wall and making Mexico pay for it, but those are pretty tame, relative. Relatively speaking, and DeSantis and Ramaswamy, defended Trump when it came to those 91 counts of charges against him. You know, Christie accused them all of treating Trump like Voldemort, the villain in Harry Potter who's talked about as he who shall not be named. (laughs) Right. So anything
3: else you were surprised by or that struck you?
14: Yeah. I mean, I was surprised that they didn't talk about or mention abortion at all. And this was a panel of moderators made up of all women. This has been the issue that has really hamstrung Republicans in the last several elections. They spent some time on this in previous debates, but we heard a lot of rehash on a lot of different topics. And it's surprising considering that they haven't been able to appeal to the middle on this. And really, this becomes the issue, it seems. That's the Voldemort for Republican leaders.
3: That is MPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you, Domenico.
14: You're welcome. Loosen up, everybody.
32: It's a Hanukkah party. We are the Levies.
9: Hanukkah starts tonight, so this year the folks at NPR Music invited the Levies to the Tiny Desk to perform some of their album, Hanukkah Rocks. Tiny Desk creator Bob Boylan even came out of retirement and brought snacks. I've
13: been listening to this record with my son for like 18 years or something. Every year at Hanukkah, these songs are so much fun. Thank you. I made you some bagels? Amazing. I know, that, that's yeah. crazy. The album
9: was a collaboration between a few touring musicians, including Adam Gardner of Guster and Dave Schneider of the Zambonis.
18: How do you spell Hanukkah?
13: And we discovered we were both Jewish and we were talking about how as kids, around the Christmas holiday, it's tough to be a Jewish kid because the music's
9: not really there.
13: Apple sauce made this record. We wrote it in a week and we recorded it and it a was week? a Hanukkah miracle, 8 days. Yeah.
9: You can find the full Hanukkah concert at npr.org/music. Two
3: candles lit. This is all things considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. An upswing on Wall Street today. The Dow rose nearly two-tenths of a percent. S&P climbed eight-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq gained one-and-four-tenths of a percent. Startups in greater Boston continue to attract venture capitalists. A survey published by the think tank Heartland Forward looked at venture capital funding between 2019 and 2021. Researcher Richard Florida says the findings buck assumptions that the pandemic, housing costs, and other issues would disperse more money money to other parts of the country.
9: So I think no matter what we've heard in the press and the media about, you know, things spreading out, the preponderance of venture capitalists and the preponderance of serial entrepreneurial talent that is needed to grow and scale these businesses, it's still in two or three places.
0: And they include Boston, along with San Francisco and New York. This is WBUR.
5: WBUR supporters include New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Tour Day this Saturday, NEIacademy.org.
0: There are candidates, and then there are candidates. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, we go to the Lesser Known Candidate Forum. That's where the longest of long-shot presidential candidates make their pitch. Listen tomorrow on the radio or on the WBUR app.
5: Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. 8.15, kickoff
0: time tonight for the New England Patriots and the Pittsburgh Steelers out in Pittsburgh. And the Bruins will be at the Garden tonight to host the Buffalo Sabres. Boston still got the top spot in the Atlantic Division. The Sabres are in seventh place in the same division. A dry, clear, cold night on the way tonight. The mid-20s at the lowest, and then tomorrow starts up a bit of a warming trend. Sunny skies to close out the work week. Temperatures could top 40 degrees. 30 degrees now in Boston. The time is 6.20.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, with over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples. CambridgeNaturals.com and Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com, member FDIC. And The Wilbur, featuring the return of stand-up comedian Mike Berbiglia for nine sold-out shows. Tickets still available for December 16th at the Wilbur.com.
3: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm
2: Elsa Chang.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Journalists at The Washington Post are making some news of their own today. About 750 staffers are on a 24-hour strike, and they're asking readers not to look at the Post's site or pick up a newspaper. NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick is covering the story.
20: David, tell us what you're seeing as the strike plays out. Well, just as we heard there, uh, you know, people from newsrooms engaged in union activity, uh, you'd be seeing a one day strike. Uh, and that means that, yes, there are these protest lines, but many stories on the Washington Post websites have datelines that, that yesterday, some of them, in fact, just minutes before midnight uh, tonight, or simply bylined Washington Post staff. That is, people pulled back their bylines where they're uh, willing to do. And there was really ang- anxiety within the Washington Post about being able to uh, stockpile enough content to be able to put out there, both in print and uh, on the website today. A Washington Post section editor's memo to colleagues uh, asked them to file stories on, quote, anything that even whiffs of news, unquote, and they cited a need to hoard copy. Here was a direct quote from this editor. He said, or he or she said, this is the first time I've typed those these words in my life. The bar is low the editor wrote, and that memo first reported by Washingtonian Magazine. Tell us what's
9: led these hundreds of Post employees to walk out.
20: Well, there are two things going on. Uh, they argue that the Washington Post company is not only taking a hard line in negotiations, but seeking to cut back the staff Uh, significantly. There's going to be a staff reduction of 10%. Uh, The Washington Post company has set a deadline for next week for voluntary buyouts of 240 people. The acting CEO, uh, Patty Stonecipher, says that if not, there aren't enough takers. The company will lay people off with severance packages that aren't so good. And people inside uh, the newsroom tell me that uh, they're really kind of feeling as though things are being targeted that may not be the highest yield of immediate clicks. So something like local news, you know, already something under fire in so many newsrooms around the country looks likely to take one of the biggest cuts. Here's a quote from Katie Mettler. She's a criminal justice reporter on the Post Metro desk.
21: I chose to be a reporter on the local desk uh, because I wanted to write about the people I live beside. Um, I think that uh, there is no kind of journalism more critical to The Washington Post's mission.
20: And I want to thank uh, Kayla Hewitt, our colleague from WAMU, for for interviewing uh, Mettler and others today. You know, there's a real sense that there's something on the line. David, what should we make of the
9: fact that this storied paper, which is owned by billionaire Jeff Bezos of Amazon, is in such financial trouble?
20: That's right. And and owned privately uh, by Jeff Bezos, I might add. You know, he bought the, the paper for $250 million, but he's put in a lot of monthly since and, and is currently, although it was in profitable until very recently, it's now hit annual losses of $100 million. It's chief executive forced out earlier this year. You know, it, they're saying a guy like Bezos should be able to afford to ride this out and make more investments. What people at the Post say is we have to figure out a way to right size this. And this is happening against a backdrop of deep cuts throughout the industry. Earlier this week, Spotify, the audio streaming giant, announced a layoffs of 17% of its workforce after previous layoffs earlier this year. And you've seen this happen at the Los Angeles Times, at, at digital upstarts like Vox and Vice and BuzzFeed, at NPR, 10% of our workforce earlier this year. You know, folks are looking up i 95 from The Washington Post at The New York Times, which seems to have struck gold with its digital paywalls, and they're wondering, what about us? NPR's David Folkin, like, thank you. You bet.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins. This is 90.9 WBUR. A 22-foot menorah was lit this afternoon on Boston Common to celebrate the first night of Hanukkah. This year, the Jewish Festival of Lights comes as Israel's war in Gaza draws growing criticism, and as reports of anti-Semitism are on the rise. WBUR's Simone Rios spoke to Boston-area rabbis about this ancient holiday taking place at a divisive time for Jews and non-Jews.
29: Light one candle for the Maccabee children Give thanks that their light didn't
12: die Just before Shabbat service at Temple Israel in Boston, musicians rehearse songs for the eight nights to come. Smiling on, Rabbi Elaine Zecker says with the tension Jews are experiencing, Hanukkah for some comes with greater significance.
29: We have to believe, especially in this time, in this moment, in the calendar year, that there is more love than hate that there is more belief in the goodness of people than the hatred of people.
12: Hanukkah is considered a minor holiday in Judaism. In some families in Western countries, it's a lot about giving Jewish kids a chance to celebrate and receive gifts during a season of omnipresent Christmas. But Zecker says it's about much more than that. She explains that the holiday marks an uprising against Greek rulers who sought to ban Judaism. They tried to rename the temple in Jerusalem in honor of the Greek god Zeus.
29: The basic story is that in the midst of oppression, in the midst of being prevented from celebrating and being Jewish, the minority rose up over the majority to be able to celebrate.
12: But Hanukkah comes at a fraught time this year. Two months ago, Hamas fighters killed some 1,200 people in Israel, marking the deadliest attack on Jews since the Holocaust. And Israel's ongoing military response has left more than 16,000 dead in Gaza, according to health officials there. Here in the States, the war has sparked angry protests on school campuses and in the streets. Emotions are running high on all sides, with evidence of anti-Muslim and anti-Jewish rhetoric both on the rise. Rob Lykand heads the American Jewish Committee's New England office.
30: Something is afoot that makes us more vulnerable. And all of a sudden there's a sense that we have to be careful now. And Lykand says Jewish places of worship are on alert. When synagogues have large numbers of people attending, they're going to bring in security. Many synagogues, which always had their doors open from early, early in the morning till late at night, now they're all locked. Everywhere you go, they're locked.
12: At Congregation Beth Shalom of the Blue Hills in Milton, visitors are being asked to let the office know before showing up at the temple. Beth Shalom's rabbi, Alfred Benjamin, says the need for security precautions goes way back in Jewish history. Hanukkah is an example. Tradition says families should display a menorah or Hanukkiah, but only if it's safe. In the codes, in the rabbinic codes, there's
25: a caveat that we shouldn't put the Hanukkiah in the window during times of persecution, where the result of having
12: that in the window could bring danger. But Benjamin says he's not going to cower or tell people not to display their menorahs. It is a mitzvah. It is
25: uh, considered part of the tradition that when a person lights the Hanukkah menorah, the Hanukkiah, that they put it in the window. uh, And that's in order to, so to speak, advertise the holiday, advertise the miracle of the oil burning the eight days.
3: Yeah, Yeah, different dreidels in here.
12: and we display our our menorahs in the windows. In Milton, Meredith Talbot and her husband David Litvak sit at their kitchen table, displaying the four menorahs they've collected over the years. Litvak says they're the only Jewish household in a neighborhood of homes with twinkling trees in the windows.
24: One of the things that distinguishes our house is that it's so dark because everyone else has uh, a lot of lights and a lot of Christmas lights, which we don't have. But Hanukkah is a time when we can put our menorahs, our lights in the window and embrace our Judaism and also kind of share in the, in the light
12: of the street. Both Litvak and Talbot are doctors. And they say since the war began, anti-Israel and frequently anti-Jewish sentiments have surfaced in many aspects of their lives. Litvak says that's why he has more resolve this year to display their menorah in the window.
24: I don't have reservations. I'd say uh, right now it's the opposite. I desperately want to show that I'm Jewish.
12: Litvak says at a time when many Jews are feeling isolated, Hanukkah gives a reason to come together with friends and family and to connect on a deeper level with the Jewish community. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. We're
28: funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at LakeChamplainChocolates.com. And Barely Read Books of Sudbury, proudly sponsoring WBUR's reading of A Christmas Carol to benefit Rosie's Place. Rare books for gifts at BarelyReadBooks.com. And Globe Santa, bringing books and toys to children in need. Joy is a gift every child deserves. Join the Globe Santa tradition. Donate now at Globesanta.org.